what what makes a, a good story is a good yarn. Uh, you know, frequently you can get mired and 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 uh, uh, get stuck in your own sludge with getting too intellectual. I think if you can tell the story, what this film is about, in more or less thirty seconds or a minute, less than a minute, then you've probably got something because everything else after that is enlargement. This film is about boom, and. Uh, it can be just a straight action adventure, but it's always better if it's character driven. So I'm nearly always looking for very strong characters. And the more I looked, because <clears throat> I was very visual, I was born blessed with a bit of an eye. I've got a very good eye. It was a natural thing for me that. So my, te my material tend to be very visual. I was always criticized for being so visual till I realized that actually it's an advantage because we aren't actually dealing in pictures, dude. Right, so I was always getting criticized by the critics, and I said, "Well, uh, hang on, it's not a radio play. We're actually dealing in pictures. So if the picture is a narrative, uh, that's good, right? Some of the greatest films have been tend to be more visual than wordy." Welcome back to a brand new episode of Not A Bomb Podcast. This is the podcast where we go back and reevaluate all the films that bombed in movie theaters or maybe the critics just weren't too kind to. I'm one of your hosts, Troy Sauer. With me is my co-partner, Brad Anderson. How are you doing this evening? Doing great, man. Bingles, bingles. Yeah, you had bingles. a great weekend, didn't you? First road playoff win ever, ever for the franchise. Wow. Yeah. So that's Suck important. It, Titans. Okay. Yeah, it's very important. Yes. Yep. Okay. So we, we know we have some, some Titans fans that listen. So, uh, <laughs> let's not be, let's, let's not, you know, be too harsh. Get a better quarterback. Okay. Anyway. Oh boy. <laughs> hey, with us again this week, uh, I feel like it's Christmas all over. We've got our good friend, Sammy from the gentleman's guide to midnight cinema. How are you doing tonight? Sammy doing good. It's good to be back two weeks in a row. I know. And uh, you guys just showed up in an article, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Some uh, paper up there in the Ontario province. You know, they got those provinces up there. Yeah. Oh, yes. In Canada. And uh, yeah, Will was, uh, I guess, interviewed because he had drove three hours to see the new screen film. Holy cow. He wanted to see what that movie was all about. Is that what it was? <laughs> a boot. He wanted to see what it was all about. Yes. <laughs> That's awesome, man. Um, so what? I'm ready to just dive into uh, this week's film because I think out of the ones that were on our schedule, uh, this was a first time watch for all of us, right? Absolutely. Okay. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Um, and this will be the last film that we kind of targeted to, to reevaluate 2021. Now, Brad, this is your pick, and you chose films that you intentionally did not see last year, but bombed, right? Yep, yep. And this one, I'm guessing, was probably the biggest bomb of last year. Um, yeah. At least monetarily, I, it was a lot. Um, yeah, and I've, I've been saving this movie for a long time. I wanted to see it in the theater. Didn't get to do it. Apparently, no one saw it in the theater. Um, <laughs> and then I got it for, for Christmas, and I've just been waiting. So I'm was very happy to 
finally fire this one up this week. What are we talking about tonight, Brad? You're talking about The Last Duel, directed by the legendary Ridley Scott. Yeah, he had a couple of films come out last year, which is pretty interesting. So I'm, I'm, did did either of you see House of Gucci, the other one? I did not. I did not. No, haven't seen it yet. Okay. I will see it, but I have not watched it yet. Yeah, it was it was one that unfortunately didn't get to, uh, and now we're in that window where you know it's coming out on yeah uh, home media what in just a few weeks. So gonna gonna wait. But I'm, are you gonna tell me? You're telling me you're gonna buy something on physical media, Troy? I I might buy it on 4K. Yeah, I think I that's going to happen. I don't believe it. I may I have already pre-booked it on 4K. <laughs> well, I hey, I had a tough time getting this one on 4K. It seemed like the 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 day it was released, everybody sold out of it and I actually had to hunt it down over Christmas break at a Best Buy. I had to do the same thing. I I actually did not go to our local Best Buy. I went to one uh closer to Sammy and had to hunt it down. So yeah. it was weird. It's weird. Yeah. Like I pre-ordered it from Amazon and they were like, we'll send you an email when it's ready. And I'm like, that's not what pre-order means, but okay. <laughs> and then, yeah. Mine was a gift for my son. My son bought it for me for my birthday. Oh, awesome. Yeah. But it was a, 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 a piddly Blu-ray. Blu-ray. <laughs> you peasant. Oh my God. I challenge you, sir. <laughs> I think so. I threw their glove on the floor. Uh, well, before we get started, a little bit of history. So the last duel from 2021 is actually based on a true story. So did you guys do any research on this? It was the start of the Me Too movement, actually, right? <laughs> We're going to get there. Don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> took, a, took a little bit longer. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Uh, I did a little bit, but not a lot. I didn't know how accurate it was. I was kind of surprised at the accuracy of some of it. Of course, we really don't know how accurate that stuff is, but at least it seems by the written story to be somewhat accurate. Yeah. So just, I guess at a high level, it is one of the last sanctioned duels um, by the French uh, judicial system. And basically it was a dispute over two gentlemen where one person, uh, Jean de Carouge, accused um, Jacques Legris of raping his wife. <laughs> sounds like a, uh, sounds like the plot of West Side Story almost or something. Yeah. <laughs> so the the way it worked back then is. Uh, I believe you're supposed to say ha ha after you oh, say yeah, their ha, names. Ha. Uh, Jean de Carouge <laughs> ha, ha, could not uh, get a fair trial in his opinion. And the way it works is if they agreed or it was approved by that point by the king, they could have a duel and let God decide. And basically the way it works is whoever lived, that was God saying, okay, that person told the truth and the other person was a liar. Now, since Marguerite de Garouge was the woman in question who claimed that she was raped, if her husband would lose the duel, then she would also be a, um, I guess, an accomplice to the lie and therefore would be tied to a stake and burned. I'm really happy that the judicial system has changed. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it's come a long way. 
Leaving yeah. it in the hands of God seems a bit, especially yeah. the belief system that uh, women could not get pregnant if they were raped. Yep. Yeah, that's just like, well, they didn't enjoy science. it. That's yeah. just science. Yes, that's yeah. just science. science. I'm like, yeah. hmm. He says that. He says, that's just science. And I'm like, yeah. wow. Yeah. Uh, so it's like, here, put all these leeches on your body. It'll cure you of all your ailments. <laughs> so this film, uh, the, it's based upon a book by Eric Yeager, but he is pulling it from a bunch of different uh, documents and source material. And one thing to keep in mind is that, and we'll talk about who wrote the screenplay and everything, but those who wrote the screenplay uh, were very true to the source material, except for maybe one character, and that's Marguerite. And we'll, we'll talk about that in detail when we share thoughts of the film. But um, there's a couple of things that did change. And in the film, it's, it's um, portrayed as one person committing the rape but in the we'll call it um real life circumstance it was that individual plus his squire i I don't know what his person would be um and the rape was extremely brutal meaning it left marks and everything and so it was it was very clear what had happened so there's no ambiguity um what had happened but the other thing to keep in mind at, at this time period rape really wasn't um, considered against the, the woman or the female. It really came down to one man had violated the property of another man. So yeah, uh, it had nothing to do with the woman. It was yes. the violation of property, the violation of science. property. That's yes. all it is. It's science. <laughs> so that's the, uh, that's the story that we're talking about in the last duel. And uh, Brad, you always start with the, financials and how this thing performed. And I think we already mentioned this is probably the biggest box office bomb of 2021. Is that fair to say? Uh, I can't imagine anything else um, because um, the budget for the last duel is reportedly around a hundred million dollars. And the box office total, um, we have a domestic total of $10.8 million and 19.6 internationally for a grand total of 30.5 million dollars ouch pretty bad um mr can i can i do the quote yeah can i do the quote right now okay mr ridley scott believes that um millennials are to blame for this uh movie not doing so well and um while on a podcast with mr mark Marin. Where is that stupid quote? I've got it in front um, okay, of Okay, I've got it yep. here. Yeah. Yep. Because I think what it boils down to, what we've got going, what we've got today are the audience who are brought up on these fucking cell phones. The millennials do not ever want to be taught anything unless you are told it on the cell phone. Oh. <laughs> uh. You know, well, that's not man. my favorite. That's not my favorite thing about that interview. My favorite thing about that interview is Mark Marin mentioning other films and Ridley Scott is saying great film, brilliant film, <laughs> masterpiece. <laughs> yeah, there, there's a lot of different uh, quotes in there. So that quote, he, he goes on to say, this is a broad stroke, but I think we're dealing with it right now with Facebook. There is a misdirection that has happened where it's given the wrong kind of confidence to this latest generation I think so. That's the full quote. He goes. He goes on to say, "The last duel isn't the only box office flop." Um, Scott blames others for. In 1982, I made a film called Blade Runner. It was my third movie. Pretty fucking good, he told Marin. I was yeah. killed. 
I was killed by film critic Pauline Kael, who didn't even meet me. She had never met me. And I suddenly read this article in The New Yorker, which is a very classy magazine. I read it, and there's a four-page series of insults. I framed it. It's in my office right now. I never read criticism. I never read critique ever again, Scott added, because she was so wrong. I was just way ahead of her. That was another quote. He was. He was right. He was totally right. Blade Runner was totally ahead of his time. That's, I mean... He got the last laugh on that. And what's what's amazing is he didn't blame the studio. Uh, also in that interview, he uh, I think Marin implied that the company, um, and, and keep in mind, this is Disney because they just bought Fox, right? So uh, Marin implies that maybe is the advertising and spend it. And he says, no, Disney did a fantastic promotion job, which means that budget is probably way yeah, higher, it's, right? It's 200 million. I mean, they lost, I think. I read some more where it's like $150 million they lost. Yes, over this thing. Um, but he says the bosses loved the movie because I was concerned it was not for them, but they really liked the movie. So their advertising, publicity, et cetera, was excellent. So they spent a lot of money uh, promoting this thing. Yeah. And when when we're, we're also talking about pandemic time, too. So they delayed it. Um, and so you're you're doing that cycle, not twice, but you're doing it like one and a half times. And so that costs money as well. Yeah. So that advertisement cycle. Crazy, crazy. I, you know, watching this film, and I know we'll talk about this in a little bit, but man, I can't believe it only costs a hundred million dollars to make this. That's what I was thinking. I thought that sounded really cheap. Um, just thinking about like the production the sets and all that production. Yeah, yeah, but we'll get there. Um, let's see. So opening weekend, which um, again was um, October fifteenth, the weekend of October fifteenth. It pulls in $4.75 million. Um, that's in over 3,000 theaters. Um, so that's a roughly about a 1,500 uh, per screen average. Um, that is good enough for fifth place that fifth. opening weekend. Wow. Here are the films that beat it out. <laughs> Evil Died Tonight. Oh, We've boy. got Halloween Kills. Uh, no Time to Die. Venom, Let There Be Carnage, and The Addams Family 2 all beat uh, The Last Duel its opening weekend. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, critically, The Last Duel sits at an 85% on Rotten Tomatoes with an 81% with the audience. Uh, both very respectable. Yeah. Um, and then if we want to go back to the, the Way Way Back machine and look at films that were released. I just closed that tab. Sorry. Uh, released October of 2021. I'm just trying to delay here because I have to open it back up. Um, we Like I said, we have Halloween Kills. The French Dispatch, which Troy, you just saw. Yes, which was fantastic. Loved it. Yep. Uh, that movie Antlers. Oh, yeah. Um, has anyone seen that? I haven't seen it yet. Nope. I haven't seen it yet. R- Randy uh, says the kid reminds him of my son. So now I'm really curious. Yeah. Okay. Uh, <laughs> last night in Soho. Yeah. Uh, Ron's gone wrong. Last night in Soho was probably my biggest disappointment of last year. I liked it. I didn't love it. Um, but I thought when I initially saw it, I'm like, oh, that's going to be my favorite movie of the year. And it just. That was wasn't. my most anticipated one. Um, yep. I thought it was. I'm kind of with you. I, I don't know. I thought it was okay. I really am curious about watching it again and sort of unpacking it some more. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, Ron's gone wrong, which I have seen a few times and I, I do enjoy that movie. Um, the Dune, which was my favorite 
film of last year. Um, the, uh, like I said, Halloween kills and that is about it. Oh, we have a movie where, uh, Bruce Willis sleepwalks through. It's called survive the game. <laughs> okay. And, <laughs> oh, venom, uh, let there be carnage. And then, uh, Adam same too. Oh, in the mini sinks of, uh, Newark. Newark. Yeah. Yep. Oh, the Sopranos prequel. Yeah, so there actually there was a lot that came out uh, in October of this year. Um, I, I hate to get all accounty on people, but that's the last quarter of a year. So if you're going to put out a movie, you're going to do it in the last quarter or so. And October just seemed like a good time to do it. So a lot of companies finally put things out. Mm-hmm. Do you think it was the right month for this film? I mean, it, it feels like a studio's, I don't know, <sighs> presentation for like the academy or something but i know he when did house of gucci come out that was november a, a month later november or december yeah yeah so i'm i'm sure it was fighting for market space against another ridley scott film so october probably made the most sense but i i almost feel that's definitely not the right month for this movie yeah it's really rare that we get a director that releases a film two films in a year, let alone two films in like two months. Yeah. But yeah. Very strange. Not very often. I can't even think off the top of my head who else had done that. He might be the only one. He might not be, but yeah. I mean, the last time I thought I could think about it is like, didn't Francis Ford Coppola do it like 20, 30 years ago? Uh, maybe seems like Spielberg may have came close once Yeah, with an animated thing, maybe 10, 10 and something else in the same year or. Oh yeah. Maybe. Yeah, like war horse or some crap. Yeah, yeah. something like that. Uh, anyway, so that's that's your numbers, Troy. Cool. Well, it's it did not make any money. It's funny. I mean, it's 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 kind of crazy to hear that release schedule because as you're going through it, all I hear are sequels and franchises and comic book movies, um, which I guess is the the typical cinema fair, right? It is now. Yes, unfortunately. Okay. Well, this is probably a good place to talk about our director, Ridley Scott. Uh, I I think when you talk Ridley Scott, everybody gravitates to movies like Blade Runner, Alien, even Gladiator. I I just had a question for you guys. If if you were, I don't know, introducing somebody who who wasn't very movie savvy and all of a sudden they they watched Blade Runner, they watched Alien, they go, wow, I, I keep seeing this name. I really I really like this director. What are some of the lesser known Ridley Scott films that you would champion? Like your top three that aren't the top three Ridley Scott films. <laughs> lesser known or my top three that aren't the top three? <laughs> uh, either or. I don't know if they're the same. Or I, I feel like the the three that I have are the ones that um, I constantly forget that he directed. And every time I run across of them, I, I'm constantly reminded how much I love them. So I, I think he's one of those directors. I don't know about you guys. He's he's got a very fascinating filmography, and I feel like he's one of those directors that he is immediately attracted by the story content, and he's chasing down good stories more than the franchises and the dollar and everything else. Um, but I'm 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 really curious. Outside of Alien, outside of Alien, outside yeah, of Alien, Alien. that's his baby. Yeah, but. Um, I'm just curious, and Sammy, I'll, I'll start with you. I mean, if if you were talking, hey, here are some Ridley Scott films. Maybe they're your top three that aren't those three, or or ones that you don't think people talk about enough. What are they? You want me to name all three? All three? Well, yeah, well, you can name one. We can talk about it, and we go. That's oh, crazy. Okay. And 
Uh, I'll start with uh, G.I. Jane. Oh, I think okay. G.I. Jane's a great film. I don't think a lot of people give that the time of day. And I think it's got a great Viggo Mortensen performance in it. Oh, uh, that's right. Yeah. yeah. A really good Demi Moore performance. Uh, it's a bit controversial. It pushes some buttons. Mm-hmm. I think it's a good, I think it's a slick movie. I think a lot of people kind of just looked away from it. They looked at it as kind of the Demi Moore shaved her head movie. She was nominated for a Razzie that year, but what do yeah. the Razzies know? Yeah. Well, exactly. I think you guys have talked about this often. Yeah. The Razzies mean nothing to me. Usually that means that I should probably check it out. I was going to say, when I when I hear something got a Razzie, I'm actually more interested to watch it. Did I saw G.I. Jane in theater. I, I, I must be honest. I never watched it again. Mm. Um, but has anybody seen it recently? Do you think it's still topical or does it play well in 2021? I think it plays okay. I don't think it plays perfectly. It uh, it tries. Um, I think it's. I think some of the people in power that are in this film plays almost too perfectly, <laughs> especially in the uh, past Trump era. So there, people might see some uh, reflective material there. Uh, great bad guy performance in the film by uh, Scott Wilson, I believe, who a lot of people would know from Walking Dead now, but he's, um, you know. Uh, great character actor from the past. Okay. But uh, I just think really what, what it comes away from is there's this really good central performance from Demi Moore and Viggo Mortensen and them pushing each other's buttons. And I think the challenge of masculinity versus femininity is is interesting. And I think it's, that part of it still holds up. Okay. Uh, now you now you got me wanting to rewatch it. Uh, excuse me, rewatch it again. I can't even talk to me. <laughs> um, Brad, what's what's one of yours? We'll we'll round robin this thing. Uh, yeah, I was gonna say Black Hawk Down Ooh. from two thousand one. Um, I remember seeing that in the theater and, and white knuckling that um, quite a bit. Also based on a book, I believe. Um, great ensemble cast. It's got uh, Josh Hartnett, uh, Hugh McGregor is in that. Eric Bana. Uh, I want to say Tom Sizemore. Uh, William Fichtner is in it also. Just about everybody's in it. Yeah. 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 Um, <laughs> ooh, and I think, actually, I think that's Tom Hardy's first role in a movie. So, oh, yeah, wow. I'm wrong on that. Yeah. 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 Um, that one was a pretty big movie. Um, I was looking at the budget of that earlier, and it cost 110 in 2001. And I look at that movie, and then I look at this one, and I'm like, boy, they're stretching $100 million really far um, so I, I'm curious if I don't want to get into it right now, but I'm curious if, if Damon and Affleck took points on the back end instead of like getting paid, you know, how sometimes oh, I'm sure take, they, I'm sure they were invested. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, so yeah, Black Hawk down, um, one of my favorite, um, theater going experiences, uh, that I can remember. It's just an intense movie. Um, you know, right after was it? Didn't it come out around nine eleven? I want to say it was like right. It was like nine months. No, not even that much. It came out in January. Yeah. Um, but uh, but yeah. So it was like we were having that nine eleven fever, and mm-hmm. this movie capitalized on that. Um, certainly, certainly. Yep. Um, I'll tell you this about that film. That film will give your sound system a workout. <laughs> I was just yes, gonna, so yes it will. that that film is on my list as a as one of the top three, and I was just gonna say that. So in the theater, I thought it was um, one of the best sounding films I had ever heard. I mean, it's full dynamic dynamic range. 
And that sucker on every home media format they put it out has been just a referential material. So if you want to show off your audio system, that's that's the one to put in. It has <laughs> so much dynamic range. You will feel the bass uh, in that sucker. Yeah. And I, it's, I, I'm with you, Brad. It's one of those, I remember seeing it in the theater and it felt like, te- it felt like it was a 10 minute film. It, it, it starts and it goes and it doesn't let up and it's exciting. And I'm not a big war movie person. Like to me, some, I, I don't know. I, I, they just, I don't know the what raw it is. Raw materi- the, the raw, raw military stuff can get a little bit grating. Yeah. And that that or also it, has some, some Islamophobia in it a bit. Um, you know, it was capitalizing on the time, but yeah. it's still a good movie. Yeah. It's ultra violent too. Yeah. Movie. Oh yeah. Yes. Yes. It's a great ensemble piece. Yeah. One of my favorite parts in any war movie is that one where they pick up a guy who's been blown in half and throw him in the back of a truck. Yeah. Yeah. They it, just throw the top half in the back. <laughs> Well, you, you took one of mine, Brad. Um, I don't know if this one's going to make on any of your guys' list. So the first one that I thought of, and outside of, of the big you know, three Ridley Scott films, this, this was the movie that kind of got me interested into uh, Yakuza films. Um, Ooh, I know what it is. So, And specifically, once I saw this one, I went to go and look for a Robert Mitchum film called The Yakuza. And so one of the one of my favorite Ridley Scott films is 1989's Black Rain with Michael Douglas. Um, that film looks so good. And I think it's a great crime thriller action film. Uh, I, I think it's like the American gateway drug to 70s Yakuza thrillers from Japan. Um, and and I love I love the 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 last sequence the the little raid on the rice farm or whatever I mean it it's it's shot so well and when you get this little motorcycle chase sequence and how it ends it's it's so much fun um, but yeah. one of the best motorcycles in cinema right it's got to be up there right that motorcycle he rides I, I think so and and I always love that film because it uh, it introduced me to Ken Takakura. So he yeah. is one of my favorite uh, actors, you know, especially of that time period. Yeah. It always reminds me of the fact that Michael Douglas, me and Will still make fun of this. Day. I think he calls people babe in the movie. Yeah. It's like, you're looking great, babe. Yeah. Was it Kate Capshaw's in that too? Um, in a uh, bit role? Yes. Yep. Maybe, Kate Capshaw's yeah, maybe, yeah. in the movie. Yep. Oh yeah. Andy, Andy Garcia. Garcia. Andy, Andy Garcia. Yeah. 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 You knew, you knew you were in a, uh, in a, late eighties, early nineties thriller when Andy Garcia showed up. Yeah. Was Michael Douglas, did he get naked in that? I don't remember if that's the case. We definitely know we're in a late eighties, early nineties. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> uh, what's another one of yours? I think Sammy? that's a, got a Hans Zimmer score too. I want to say, Oh, it probably did. I, I, yeah. did, I love everything about that film. I think it's all perfect. Yep. Um, so I'm kind of taking the same approach. Like I'm, I'm, I got like six here and whatever you guys say that, I was going to use, I'm like checking it off. So I won't repeat. So oh, that's planning. Many. Man. You're way smarter yeah. than me. <laughs> that way I'm just playing the averages here. That way I can get, definitely get three unique films and hopefully, but I'm going to go with one that really got uh, crapped on when it came out. And I, I think it's one of the most bonkers movies in this filmography. And that's the counselor. Oh, oh I yes, have not seen it yet. <laughs> oh, you got to see the counselor, man. The counselor is just bonkers. A lot of people gave it a lot of uh, uh, gruff about, 
the fact that nobody talks that way. It's written by Cormac McCarthy, who has a certain way of writing. And um, I think Scott stuck to the script, maybe a bit too tightly. And uh, so people do kind of speak strangely. But um, I think it works for the movie because the movie's so over the top. Yeah. That it's Cameron Diaz has sex with a car in that movie. Yeah. Yes. And yes, she does. Yep. It's it's just it's crazy. It's a crazy movie. It really is. And uh it, it violent, nasty, uh mean spirited. It's uh yeah, it's it's an interesting movie from Ridley Scott. A- at that point in his career, I thought, wow, here's an older gentleman making some really aggressive material. And then I saw this film. <laughs> We're gonna talk about tonight. <laughs> and he's even older. Yeah. <laughs> I think one of the things he does in a lot of his movies, and I think it's really great, is the cast in all of his movies are always fantastic. Yeah. The Counselor, which is like a, I don't want to say a nothing movie, but it's got Fassbender, Diaz, Bardem, uh, Penelope Cruz, uh, Brad Pitt's in that movie. Like, it's ridiculous for, you know, a movie called The Counselor. So hmm. Might have to fire that up if you come and visit, Troy. Might have to fire it up. I've, yeah, Ooh. I've never seen it. I, that that okay. might be one of the ones we need to watch. Um because it's funny, we we've talked to a few people, and the counselor has come up a few times in terms of recommendations and lists. It's it's on our list um, that we want to tackle. Um, so we'll we'll eventually talk about it on the show. But yeah. hearing you kind of um, pitch it that way, I'm like, wow, yeah, that's uh, that just moved up on the on the ladder there. <laughs> it's it's a wild movie. I mean, it really is. I I understood why people didn't like it, but I was just kind of like, whoa. It's kind of like seeing the uh, oh, I saw like I watched definitely watched a Keanu Reeves movie this week, didn't I? And uh, I, I, I know kung fu. Yeah, <laughs> I know kung fu. The um, it kind of reminded me of that time when I when I watched the Paperboy, the uh, that film with uh, uh, Nicole Kidman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I did, I expected one kind of movie, and when it was over, I was like, my jaw was on the floor. I was like, wow, that was <laughs> not what I thought it was going to be. <laughs> oh wow! All right, Brad, what's another pick from you? Okay, I have to put a disclaimer out i'm gonna say you have to watch the director's cut of this movie because i do not like the the theatrical cut of this but it's kingdom of kingdom of heaven from 2005 which kind of fits in his motif right he's got those epic um you know fictional historical films gladiator uh the last duel uh exodus i think is another one um this one Again, has a great cast. Orlando Bloom, uh, Eva Green, Jeremy Irons, Edward Norton, just Liam Neeson, like all these people. Um, really like this movie. I, you know, I'm a sucker for like the Crusades and things like that. Um, and uh, the director's cut is, I don't know if there's a bigger gap in a director's cut and a theatrical cut, but this one has to be up there because the difference in quality is like night and day. Um, so if you're going to watch it, watch the, watch the director's cut. That's a great pick. Um, I, I gotta say that's one I, I revisit quite a bit. I, it is so epic and grand in scope. Um, <laughs> the, the director's cut is almost 200 minutes long. It, it is, but I, you don't feel it. I mean, I'll say this when, when Ridley Scott takes you on a journey, um, especially a historical journey, you're in, I mean, there's, there is no detail spared. And I love that. I, I love that epic filmmaking. Yeah. 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 Uh, okay. My pick <laughs> it's again, it's one that every time I watch, I totally forget that he did this film and it's 2006, a good year. I really, 
really love this film. I think it's one of Russell Crowe's best performances. <laughs> Check it off your list, Sammy. Um, <laughs> It's it's such a sweet film, and it's it's one of those that obviously, as I get older and busier in life and everything else, that that's a film that just speaks to me. And again, it's an it's another I, I don't know Ridley Scott. He will take these what seem to be either very interesting stories and bring them to life, or take something that seems pedestrian. You know, a businessman inherits a, a, a winery or a wine farm and you know and then it's sort of fish out of water tail but yet he manages to take the viewer and just ingrain it into that world and it and it's so beautiful it's it's like watching a Ridley Scott travel log with some great performances and it's just such a feel good film so obviously I'm a I'm a glasses uh, half full kind of guy and and a good year is right up my alley and it's one that I just don't think you expect from Ridley Scott and it it's I don't know. I don't know what you guys think about it. It's 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 another one that I gravitate to all the time. It's the uh, polar opposite of the counselor. I can tell you that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I like it a lot. Uh, Marianne Cotillard. I fell in love with her for that film, mm-hmm. and I think it's a really good example of how likable uh, Russell Crowe can be on screen. Oh yeah. Uh, when he's not beating the shit out of people at the telephone. <laughs> <laughs> when he's not being a jerk everywhere yeah. else, uh, yeah. you forget sometimes how charming he can be. Um. I really, I really like it a lot too. It's a, uh, it was a bomb. That was a bomb as well. Yep, it's one yeah. that I would love to talk about at some point. I'd love to revisit it. I haven't seen that movie since probably two thousand, probably when it came out. What two thousand six? Um, again, also based on a book. So there's a kind of a mo- like a common thread with him. It's you know you're doing historical epics, stuff based on books, things like that. So. Yeah, it's one I did not want to see, and I think I I watched it because my wife wanted to watch it. And as soon as we're you know it was over with, I'm like, oh my god, that that was one of my favorites of that year. Yeah, I mean, romantic comedy. You're like, nah, but you're like romantic comedy directed by Ridley Scott. Maybe I'll check it out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, what's your third pick, Sammy? So my third pick's a bit of a cheat in that everybody knows what it has probably knows of it, but I don't think people give it enough credit for what it is. And that's 1985's Legend. I love Legend uh, so much. Um, At the time, it was that first time Tom Cruise got cast and everybody was like, what? Yeah. Why would you you put him in this? And then he would do that a couple other times in his career. But this is, to me, this is just a fantasy. This is one of his most lush and beautiful films. And it just has wonderful makeup design. Rob Bottin's involved. Uh, everybody's great. Tim Curry as the darkness is one of my favorite heavy roles performances of all time. It's just one of my favorites. He's just this kind of big poetic Shakespearean donkey slash devil slash. I don't know what he is, but it's, it's amazing. I got the action figure around here somewhere. Oh, wow. um, is it next to your mattresses? <laughs> yes. Yeah, next to the multiple mattresses. back there. <laughs> but uh, it was a bomb too at the time. I think it uh, cost about 35 million or something like that to make. And, that looks like 24.5 and only made 15. So, um, but I think, I mean, and I don't think critically it is, was well at the time. Yeah, I would recommend people. This is another one where I would recommend people go with the director's cut. I like the theatrical cut, but the director's cut is different. And, uh, I would recommend people go with that. Definitely. It's, uh, it's quite different. That, that was a, yeah. that was my other pick. I mean, I was going to pick a Tom Cruise film. So yes. Yeah. Uh, I agree with you hundred percent. It's, it's something um, I, I don't know. I, I just can't think of another film 
with its score and its imagery and what it's like the way the narrative sort of unfolds. It's so unique. Now, some people may look at that and go, it's kind of boring. Um, and it's probably, you know, all visuals and not much depth, but I, I still think it works really well. Yeah, I do too. I think it's wonderful. And I think it's got a very sweet yet twisted, dark kind of melancholy sense to it. It's just a wonderful fairy tale, I think. Okay. Brad, your third one. Um, again, this one is based on a book. It's a science fiction film from 2015. It is The Martian. I think arguably The Martian might be his most watchable film. Um, it's mm. one of those movies that if it is on and Mike Watney is on Mars, like wherever it is, I'm watching until he comes back. Like it's just, it's, it's, uh, one of those movies that's enthralling, no matter how many times you see it. Um, again, great cast, great soundtrack, uh, great visuals. I mean, Mars looks amazing. Um, you're learning a lot of stuff too, Troy, about space. Uh, learning you know, is you learn, They're called souls on, you know, on uh, not days. They're called souls on Mars. Um, but yeah, I mean, that movie was huge. And I remember seeing that in the theater and, and my wife. I almost said my wife at the time. She's still my wife uh, at the time. <laughs> my wife was like, this is actually a movie that I would say is better than the book. It did the story better than the book. Um, so I, I I don't read, so I, I, I can't say, but I do love that movie quite a bit. It, uh, it's it got a look. And again, Matt Damon is perfect in that movie. Um, he is. If he's you haven't, seen, really good if you haven't seen The Martian, it's like just... Again, it's enthralling from start to finish. I think it was a big deal when it came out. I, I find that's one of those films people don't revisit enough. Um, and I, I think it's super good. I think it made over like $600 million. Like it's, I think it might be one of his highest grossing films. It's oh. not the highest grossing. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, well, my third one. So it, it was going to be Legend. Um which took that. And I had Black Eyes. So I kind of I did what Sammy did. And I had a few in the background. Yeah. So uh, another one that I really like, uh, and, and what's funny is the kids and I went down this franchise. There's, there's one film we still haven't watched, um, but but it's weird. We all sat down to watch Silence of the Lambs, and uh, my kids just love that film. And then one night, Angel and I decided to watch Michael Mann's Manhunter, and she fell in love with that one, but Cameron hadn't seen it. So this other one, Cameron and I sat down to watch. Angel hasn't seen it. And it's 2001's Hannibal. So I think Ridley Scott is the only guy who would be brave enough to turn around and go, oh, I'm going to make a film to one of the greatest horror slash serial killer films out there. I'm going to do a sequel to it where the author flat out said the only reason why he did the book was so that he could just kind of end that franchise in such a in such a way and i don't know if he intentionally put an ending out there that he was basically saying hey nobody's gonna want to film this the way the story plays out in the book and i don't know if you guys read the book it's 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 pretty interesting um but he's he's basically he wrote a book that he's like there's no way hollywood's gonna turn this into a film um and if they do they're gonna really have to change that ending and and they did 
Um, but I, I think that's pretty ballsy for Scott to kind of go, man, Silence of the Lambs, who wins all these Academy Awards, and he's going to step up and do a sequel to it. And so what does he, what does he do? He, he kind of does, uh, I don't know, this, this Giallo-like sequel that just gets more and more bizarre and brutal. Uh, and I, I don't know. It's, I, I really like Hannibal a lot. Um, and I, I think it's one of those where they improved the ending of the story in the film versus the book. And I, I don't know what you guys think of Hannibal. I, I, I love it. I like it. Don't love it. Oh, okay. Ooh. That's one of my favorite Gary Oldman performances. I love that performance from Gary <laughs> Oldman. Ray Liotta eating brains in that movie. It's insane. Yeah, you yeah. get to that it's ending. Insane. It's It feels like Italian cinema on full display. Um, yeah. I don't like where this is going, Troy. No. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's one that, honestly, I've only seen it once. I probably saw it when it came out, and I haven't watched it again. I probably need to check it out again. It was a fun rewatch. It's it's one that the more I watch it, uh, and and it's also too. I mean, hindsight's twenty twenty, but what it what I kind of like uh, between Manhunter, Silence of the Lambs, and Hannibal, I, you know, Red Dragon's its own thing. Each each one is a is a very distinct way of telling a thriller. Yeah. And it's own and, and I love that everybody just has a different vision with some of these same characters. And uh-huh. Anthony Hopkins, I mean, he reprises that Hannibal role. Uh, and I really like what he does with it. Um, he he really just takes it and runs with it. And it and you would think a sequel to Silence of the Lambs wouldn't work, but for me it, it works really well. We should I should admit here on the show, for those who understand what it's like to be a physical media collector. When I say I liked it, I didn't love it, but I still bought the 4K. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't own the 4K. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, maybe I like it more than I think I like it. Yes. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I yeah. buy lots of things I don't like. <laughs> yeah. It, well, yeah, you can't you can't judge the quality of a film on whether or not we bought it. <laughs> you certainly yeah, that's not amongst silly. us three. Not, I, no pre- three I pre-ordered Halloween Kills. I own amongst, Halloween Kills, and I don't like it. Not amongst us three or any of the people we talk to. No, you cannot judge no. a film on quality. There. Yep. If there's a price and you're like, ah, it's ten bucks. <laughs> ah, it's fifteen bucks. I will go on to HamiltonBooks.com and be like, that Blu-ray is a dollar ninety-five. That movie looks crazy, but it's a Blu-ray for a dollar ninety-five. I should buy it. Yes. Um, it's immaterial at that point in time. <laughs> I've got a, I've got a problem. I just want to put, out, I just want to put out there that Ridley turns eighty-five this year. He's got fifteen projects in production. Four of them he's attached as director. Jeez. I, <laughs> hey, I, I gotta say, I, I'm struggling to get out of bed in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> as an artist, as a storyteller, um, Ridley Scott to me is is in the top twenty conversations of of like world directors, in my opinion. I, I really do think if you go through his filmography, um, he takes chances as a director. He tells interesting stories. Uh, you already mentioned this, Brad. He gets amazing cast together. Uh, and, and if you look at all the people that he's worked with, he has worked with all of the, the industry heavyweights. Um, and I just, e- even when Ridley Scott swings and misses, I think there's still a really interesting film there. Yeah. yeah. I will say... I agree with you like 95% of the time, but that, that Russell Crowe Robin Hood movie is putrid. Everything else. I own that on Blu-ray. Everything else. I will, I I will go to bed that has some sort of quality. (laughs) 
when the 4K comes out, I'll, I'll, is it out yet? Because I'll probably buy it. The question is, it's putrid for Brad. Does Brad own it on 4K? Or I, I do not. I do not own it. Uh, I did see it in the theaters, but I did not. Uh, I do not own it. I will say the director's cut's better than the original cut. Yeah. And that and that's usually the case with him, right? And it makes yeah. you wonder, like, like how, how come a guy like Ridley Scott, who has you know, put together movies and we've seen it in the past, Blade Runner being one of them that, you know, he puts out these films and then the, the film he wants to put together is much better than the film that gets released. Why don't studios just be like, okay, just put out yeah. the one you want right now. So we don't have to go through this exercise yeah. of you recutting the film a hundred times. Just I think put out the one you want. I think he's always been really smart. I think he knows where his bread is buttered. I mean, he didn't make his first film till he was 39. So, he, I think he's always played the game in Hollywood, uh, and and he's known how to do it. And yeah, I guess you could argue that like he's putting out a a, a cut for the theater because he knows most people aren't going to sit through a three hour cut of a film. They'll right. sit through a two hour cut of a film. But people who buy a movie, they're more likely to sit and watch that three hour three hour cut yeah. or whatever, or see or watch scenes that really don't do a whole lot, but are just visually interesting or, or whatever. Yeah. He's one of those directors where home media has really helped him. Oh yeah. Yes. Uh, well, let me ask you this question about him. So I'm, I'm so glad you brought up that article because when this film didn't do so hot and he's got house of Gucci around the corner, he goes onto a podcast and he, and he basically says, okay, the audience that goes to the films, these millennials, they're moron, they're, they're moronic, right? They, yeah. they don't get it. They're stupid. Um, they don't want to, they don't want to learn about history. I, I think it's interesting that here's a director. And like you said, he puts a movie out probably for the audience, for the theaters, but then he has more success in his storytelling from a narrative perspective when he gets to put his cut out on home media. Do you think he's a director that looks down at the audience or, um, is frustrated with the audience. Uh, I mean, I, I get the feeling there's a disconnect between Ridley Scott um, and the and the general audience, or at least his feeling of it. Well, I would put Ridley Scott and, and John Carpenter in the same vein. Is their films are always released ten years too early, um, and then people look back on them and they're like, "Oh, that movie is actually brilliant," or "That movie is actually, you know, breathtaking," or whatever. Um, you know, Blade Runner being the first one, but like, I think his, his, his demo is not 18 to 32. It's like 32 to 45. Um, and usually those people have a lot of disposable income and will go to the theater. Um, but yeah, I think he, he has a level of sophistication to his movies and he's not, he's not dumbing it down for the general. Maybe audience. he doesn't mean you know, he could be sort of, you know, pretentious about things and that's fine um but he's not going to dump things down and i don't think if you're if you're putting something together that is your vision and your uh sort of grand scheme of things you're not going to dumb it down you want to put out what you want to put out and i understand that um sometimes it hits and then sometimes it doesn't um he's i think he's a brilliant director um you know, sometimes he gets a little, I'm going to yell at the clouds old man about it, but that's fine. <laughs> he's, he's 85 and still rocking it. So yeah, he's doing something right. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know, man. He, um, uh, you know, he, he seems to make for the most part films for adults. Um, you know, some of his stuff does cross over, 
I don't think, you know, him and Carpenter and all these guys, I think, I think they're just lamenting the, the big budget Hollywood that was the, even the eighties for them, uh, or maybe even the nineties in some ways, certainly the seventies when they got to right. do what they really pretty much wanted to do. And I think they're just, you know, they're older men who are frustrated that, you know, culture's changed and, uh, they have trouble adapting to that. And, uh, luckily they still get to make movies. I, I said this on our podcast, you know, it's really a great time for octogenarian, uh, septuagenarian film filmmakers right now. I mean, it's, it's crazy. Some of these guys, Verhoeven's like 83, uh, you know, Scott's 85. He did two movies last year. Spielberg's in his seventies. Scorsese's doing his biggest budget film. Yeah. Coming his out. Yeah. Eastwood's yeah. in his nineties making films. Yeah. I mean, it's just crazy. These people are managing to, in my opinion, stay relevant in a market that tends to always go for youth. Yeah. I, I get, I get a feeling like I would love to be a fly on the wall with Ridley Scott and the marketing department, because I feel like that conversation between marketing and maybe, you know, the producers, editors, et cetera, it's gotta be very interesting because Ridley Scott is telling everybody, I want to tell this story and I want to do it in this fashion. And marketing's like, yeah, but we're going to sell it this way. And we're going to tag it this way. And I can, I can see Ridley Scott going, that's not my movie or that you're, you're just scratching the surface of my film. And that that's really not what we're trying to push here. Right. Right. Uh, what? I'm sorry. I'll apologize now that if you guys hear any uh, versions of this girl is on fire by Alicia keys, my daughter is screaming at the top of her lungs, not far from where I'm recording. So we get a copyright strike. It's going on you. Yeah. Seriously. I mean, she is blowing it up in this. Oh, that's Alicia, Alicia keys. I'm sorry. Forgive me. If uh, Google shuts this episode down, it's your fault. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, let's talk about the people who wrote the film. So Nicole Holofcener, that last name, I'm going to butcher that. She's a writer and director as well. Uh, she did walking and talking friends with money, both wrote and directed. The next two names are, are I think heavy hitters in Hollywood, especially in front of the screen. But I was totally shocked to see Ben Affleck and Matt Damon working together on a screenplay now, most of them will remember Goodwill Hunting, 1997. That that kind of put them on the scene, right? So they, mm-hmm. they wrote the screenplay for that. And I think a lot of people forget that Ben Affleck probably has a lot of, of pretty big writing credentials. He was a screenwriter for Gone Baby Gone, The Town, Live by Night. Matt Damon, maybe not so much. He did a, He wrote a screenplay in 2002 called Jerry and in 2012, Promised Land, which I don't think was too well received. It's about hacking no. oil, oil hacking, or what do you call it? Fracking, fracking. 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 Yep. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, those two wrote the screenplay along with Nicole, which I think is pretty interesting. Uh, yeah. Nicole but, was brought on to give a female perspective. They didn't feel like they could give a proper female perspective to the story, which yeah, makes total sense. Yes. Um, and, and the screenplay is based on the books by Eric Yeager. So again, we talked about this at the top, uh, it is based on true story. Cinematographer Darius Wolski. Uh, he's worked with Scott uh, a lot. He also did the cinematography for House of Gucci, which came out last year. News of the World in 2020. Alien Covenant in 2017. The Martian in 2015. The Counselor in 2013. Prometheus in 2012. Um, I, he got his start in the 80s. He was doing music videos. 
And if you go all the way back to 1987, he did the music video for uh, Luca by Suzanne Vega. That was his, oh, his first wow, directing yeah. credit. Nice. And it's funny, you know, we talk about these odd credits, and I guess I totally kind of forget. For, for some reason, I thought this was filmed right before the pandemic, and it was just in a holding pattern. But I guess there are elements of it, uh, or when it was, you know, in production. But you're starting to see this credit now, COVID cleaning and sanitizing production assistant. <laughs> so that was Sarah Barr on this film. This is her only film credit, but I have a feeling uh, she did a good job. Sadly, she's places. I'm sadly, she's. This is probably not going to be her only credit. Yeah, I think we're going <laughs> to see Sarah's name. Get more work. Yeah. yeah, yeah, she's going to get more work. The um, yeah, I, I I think she did a great job with that on this film. <laughs> I, I think so too. Everybody looked healthy, except for the ones with the plague. I don't think anybody. Yeah, I don't know about everybody looking healthy, but I don't think anybody came. I don't remember any of these guys catching COVID. No, I don't think so. One like Tom Hanks and Reed Wilson, just you know, out there going crazy in Australia, kissing everybody and everything else. Yeah, <laughs> that was. Uh, yeah, just, uh, let's talk about the people in front of the camera: um, Matt Damon, Adam Driver, Jodie Comer, Harriet Walter, and Ben Affleck. So, out of that cast, uh, Matt Damon, uh, what Ben Affleck, really well known. Um, I, the question I have for you guys though, are they enough to pull an audience in anymore? I mean, it's, it's not the nineties We're yeah, it's hard to say because Damon's had some movies that have not done well yeah. recently and Affleck is kind of the same way. Those guys are getting older now and they don't have the same pull as they did 10 years ago. So, I, I mean, my theory is them in the 90s yes people go see them even with funky haircuts them in 2021 funky haircuts and i can remember being in a theater the first time i saw a trailer for this film and i remember audible laughter when <laughs> matt damon showed up on screen and when ben affleck showed up on screen adam driver got away, he got away with it fine because he just looked like kylo ren he was fine yeah. Um, but Matt Damon and Ben Affleck, I heard people laughing, mostly young people. Uh, I didn't laugh. I just thought, oh, that's an interesting look. <laughs> um, but I remember reading that. I thought this was going to be a Viking film. And of course, this is not even close to a Viking film. Nope. But I mean, I guess it is in some ways when it comes to violence, maybe, but it's, you know, totally about the French and everything else. So it has nothing to do with Vikings. So when I first saw Matt Damon, I was like, okay, I'll buy the Viking look. But then I realized, wait a minute, they're talking about France. What's wrong with his hair? <laughs> and then, you know, Ben Affleck shows up in just a little bit in the trailer. And I'm like, whoa, what's, what is going on? So I had a moment where I was like, wow, that's, that's a risky move. Even for those guys, it's risky. Hey, they went for accuracy, apparently. So did, did a little research and those haircuts apparently were accurate for the time. I don't, I don't know if the, the, I don't know, frosted tips were accurate. Uh, hi, my name is, <laughs> my name is. I was waiting for Matt Damon to jump into a NASCAR and take off. <laughs> yeah. Um, no. They... To the bridge. Hey, watch this. <laughs> hey, hold my beer. Watch this. <laughs> um, Adam Driver. I'm going to shoot this Tannerite real quick. <laughs> What what are your thoughts on Adam Driver? I mean, I I have been a fan of his. I got I got to tell you, the film that really sold me on it was Logan Lucky in 2017. As I soon was as just going to say that Logan yeah. Lucky is an awesome film. People always talk about in you know, the Knives Out is Daniel Craig's kind of 
awesome kind of off the kilter sort of performance. Logan Lucky, his performance is a hundred times better yes. than Knives Out. I have always liked Adam Driver. I've liked him from the beginning. Uh, and mostly it's because he has non-traditional good looks. Yeah. Uh, we, were text- we were texting about that the other day. Yeah. I mean, his nose might be about nine inches long. <laughs> I mean, it's as long as his sword. And you know what I mean? Uh, it's uh, Oh, my God. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> He, he uh he just got a he's got a interesting face and I think that that I enjoy actors who have interesting faces and I just think that he has an interesting look I like the way he delivers dialogue he's uh he's a he's a larger gentleman seems like he's probably six foot six foot two probably somewhere in that realm right he can do the heavy and he can do the hero and he can do the uh kind of everyday guy I think he can do it all and uh he's really honestly. I think one of the the best up and coming kind of young actors out there right now. Yeah, mar- marriage story. Like my wife and have and I have a great marriage, but you watch that movie and you're like, boy, that's rough to watch, man. It is tough. Uh, yeah, Oof. yeah. He's think- he's one that as soon as I see his name in something, for me, I'm I'm ready to go and I want to see it. Because uh, even when I saw this film, the last two, I'm like, ooh, I'm kind of interested in that. But I mean, it, it played for a couple of weeks out of here and it was gone because obviously he was doing so bad. Yep. But yeah, I'm, I, Logan Lucky was the one I'd always knew about him and obviously Star Wars and everything else. But as soon as I saw Logan Lucky, I think that's when I kind of fell in love with him as a, a performer and immediately was, OK, that's a name that the minute I see it on a credit, I'm, I'm just going to go watch that film. Yeah. Well, I also think it speaks a lot about an actor, about the type of directors that cast them in films. He's worked with Spike Lee, Steven Soderbergh, yes. uh, Martin Scorsese, you know, pretty much everybody who is somebody directing has had Adam Driver in a film. And I think Terry that Gilliam. says a, a lot about an actor. Um, yeah. Terry Gilliam. Uh, yep, you know. Exactly. It, I mean, I loved him so much in uh, Jim Jarmusch's uh, zombie movie. He's like so pitch perfect with uh, him and uh, Bill Murray's relationship. I love it. Is, is that worth seeing? I, I heard way too many people just not give it a, a thumbs up oh you gotta watch it okay oh the dead the dead don't die or whatever it's called yeah 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 you yeah. gotta watch it well now i'm gonna watch it uh i thought it. this was interesting so jody comer um we just saw her this year in free guy with yeah. uh ryan reynolds she was my favorite thing in free guy i, I agree Ugh. she she plays Ugh. marguerite Ugh. she was that awesome movie sucks so bad i hate that movie <laughs> so much i hate it it's it's okay no I, Ugh. It's uh, all right. Brad is Sorry. where fun goes to die. <laughs> that movie's not. God damn it, Troy! <laughs> <laughs> You're really upset about that. I think Troy and I are probably. I mean, it's fine. It's I, I didn't okay. Like it. I, yeah, I, I was. <laughs> I'm not I, like I'm not in a rush to watch it again anytime soon. You gotta remember, Troy lives in a Ryan Reynolds house. Yeah, That's I'm a little thing. brainwashed on that one. Hey, like, guess Ryan, what? Ryan Reynolds played Deadpool one time, and now we get to see him play Deadpool in every flipping movie he's in. That's why she was the best thing about that film. I'm not. Yeah. Di- I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm moving on. Has um, anyone watched Killing Eve at all? Killing Eve. Anyone? Oh, I was just going to. So she's in that, and Harriet Walter is in Killing Eve. Yeah. So both of them are from there. But I thought this was interesting too. So Jodie was in Star Wars: Rise of Skywalker, 2019. She was Ray's mother. Mm-hmm. And Harriet was in Star Wars: The Force Awakens from 2015 as Doctor Colonia. Oh, 
So I knew that I knew that first one. Didn't know the second one. Yeah, they were both in Star Wars uh, films, and they've both been in uh, Killing Eve. Well, Adam Driver's in a Star Wars film. Well, yeah, there you I go. Got, little Star Wars reunion. I just got terrified <laughs> by my daughter. She snuck up on me there. <laughs> Woo. I'm watching your screen, and that she came out of nowhere. Holy crap! Okay. Um, real quick, I want to talk about the development. So the project was initially announced in 2015 with Francis Lawrence planning to direct the film. So Francis Lawrence directed Constantine, I Am Legend, and Red Sparrow. So I thought that was interesting. Ridley Scott was not the initial and director. And a lot of the Hunger Games movies, right? Isn't oh, yeah, like yeah. A lot of Hunger Games. 75% of the Hunger yep. Games, yeah. And uh, Sean Grant writing the screenplay. So no further development was announced, and the film rights lapsed. So this was a project started about 2015. So in July of 2019, um, Deadline Hollywood announced that Ridley Scott was planning to direct the film with Ben Affleck and Matt Damon set to star, as well as write the screenplay with Nicole. With Walt Disney Studios holding the rights to the film as a result of the Disney-Fox merger, it was unknown if the company would produce the film, owning to its subject matter. However, Deadline Hollywood added that every studio in town was waiting in the wings should Disney sell the rights. And in September, Jodie Comer entered negotiations to join the cast. Um, Adam Driver entered negotiations to join the film. Uh, and what's interesting is Ben Affleck was originally supposed to play the role that Adam Driver was, but he chose the the role of Pierre Delacon. So that meant that they needed to find somebody to fill the uh, main antagonist, Jacques Legree. That's where Adam Driver came in. Yeah. So uh, this obviously was a, a COVID production. Um, for some reason in my head, I thought it was filmed before, but... It was, it was filmed during that. It looks like, though, it was um, it was in production from 2015. Yeah, it was. I mean, it started filming in February of 2020. And yeah. it's out the next uh, October, which I, for a movie like this scale, you're just like, man, they that's are, crazy. Turnaround they're time. moving yeah. and moving. So, yeah. And, and again, kudos to Sarah Barr who was the COVID cleaning and sanitation production assistant. She yeah, did an amazing yeah. job keeping everybody yeah. health and safety. Um, yeah. We talked about the <laughs> uh, Scott's response to everybody else's response to this film. And so I, I guess it's time to kind of talk about our response to the film. Now I full disclosure, and I think I texted this to you guys after watching it. I, I felt like we were a little out of our league on this one in terms of its subject matter. But after giving it some thought, I, I couldn't think of a more interesting group of guys to sit down and talk about this film than us. So Brad, I'm going to start with you. This was your pick. And I'm really curious about your initial response to the last duel. Yeah. So I, I will say my initial reaction, uh, I thought the first 20 minutes was super confusing. Um, there's a lot of weird cuts and movements in time. And then you realize that the narrative structure is essentially a game of telephone where someone tells a story and then someone else tells a story and then someone else tells a story. And you're looking for the differences in those three stories. It's all about this not all about this one event, but the one event is kind of the culmination of what happens. And then that's why they have a duel. Um, I, I will say I'm a sucker for these kind of movies. You give me dudes and with swords and lots of mud and arrows through people's faces and uh, 
brutal sword fights and jousting and all that stuff. I'm in yeah. for that stuff. Nine inch uh, noses. Yeah, well, yeah, nine inch noses. That's my favorite metal band. Um, <laughs> it, it's you know, and and I, I will say I think the performances in this movie are great. Um, again, that's another one of those things of movies I love. I love watching actors just act. Um, and I did not have a whole lot of Jody Comer um, experience except for Free Guy. Um, and I'm trying to erase that from my my memory, but um, <clears throat> that movie, not her performance, but I, I enjoyed her. She seemed a little bit um, for about 70% of the movie. She seemed a little out of it. And then you kind of learn why she's that way. And I kind of like the way they, they structured this movie. Um, it took me a little while to get used to it in like seeing a scene, you know, two ways and then seeing another scene, you know, you're, and it makes sense. Like, uh, the Adam driver character and Matt Damon character did this battle together and you look for the differences in those two battles. And you're like, Oh, in that part, he actually doesn't save his life. Like he said, and all this stuff and mm-hmm. someone's lying and I don't know who it is. Um, but I, I really thought the, 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 the standout of this movie was like the production value, um, the sets, like the castles and all that stuff just looked amazing. Um, and everything just had that right amount of dirt everywhere that, you know, 1390s, uh, France would have, yeah. um, including Matt Damon's face. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> and he's got these weird scars and of course the hair yeah. and Ben Affleck's hair in this movie is one of the worst choices I've ever seen in anything. And I think he actually is a, like, do you hate the character in this movie? Of course you do. And I think yeah. that's the whole point. So the the performance paid off because he is an absolute um, just sort of pompous asshole who, you know, has a little bit of power and, and takes as much as he can. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I really dug this movie a lot. Uh, the two hour and 30 minute uh, runtime really went quick after I kind of got used to it. I don't know that first 20 minutes. There's like a lot of weird cutting. I thought I had to watch a, a scene a few times because I'm like, it cuts and then it cuts to a whole different thing. And I'm like, where, what is going on? And then later on, I realized, okay, like they're, they're doing this narrative structure where it's like the truth by so-and-so the truth by so-and-so and then the truth by so and you're like, okay, I got it now. So it just took me a little while to get kind of in the cadence of the film. So, so let me once ask, I did, I was, I was, I was on board. Let me ask you this. So uh, directors, screenwriters, whatever it is. And I feel like the nineties, there were a lot more examples of this where Pulp Fiction is a great example. Pulp Fiction comes on the scene. It has this incredibly intricate narrative style. And I feel like a lot of directors are like, Oh, well, I want to tell this story in segments and pieces. And part of the enjoyment of the film is putting all the pieces together like a puzzle. But the, then the question you have to ask is take that structure away do you still have an interesting story? Like if it's told linear fashion, all things out from A to Z, does it still work? Or is the only reason why the story works is because they're messing with the narrative style. I don't want to call it cheating, but it's almost like, well, we know our narrative isn't that strong. So putting a crutch on it by splitting it up in some way makes it more interesting. Do you, do you think this movie falls into that camp? Not, 
or not in this case, because it is literally like a, he said, he said, she said sort of thing. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, more of a, he said, she said, because Matt Damon doesn't know the truth, Uh, but it's like a, he said, she said sort of deal. And I think showing that in the movie makes, makes total sense. Um, So I, I, I see why they did it. It just took me a little while to get used to it. But again, because it's like a game of telephone, it's kind of cool to see, those differences in the story and how scenes were different when someone else was telling the quote unquote truth. Okay. Well, Sammy, what, what's your initial take on this? Um, well, I'm a big fan of Rashomon. <laughs> so I knew that uh, going in that this was a perspective piece. So I knew if I wouldn't have known that I maybe probably would have been shocked a little bit, but I knew that going in. So I didn't know how they set it up. And I started watching it, and I agree, the beginning of it, it's a little choppy, a little all over the place. But then I, I think about it, and, and I was watching it, and I'm thinking that maybe Scott was going for almost the personality of the characters themselves with the storytelling, because Damon's a little choppy and uh, a little all over the place. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he's definitely the most emotional character in this story. I don't think he gets the most emotional moments. He gets the most angry moments and he definitely gets to portray rage a lot here. I mean, this is, man, this is the angry white guy on 11, the whole movie. I mean, he's (laughs) hardly ever happy. (laughs) Uh, Well, he's, he, not that mm, it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. But, but I mean, he's an aggressive personality. Yeah. Uh, He's a, he's a warrior. He's a leader. Um, This is a different time. This is when people were much more, aggressive in nature i mean this is life and death this is not you know so and so didn't turn into spreadsheet um so i i kind of got it from that and then i kind of you know you get the driver's side of the story it's a little bit more laid back it's almost kind of romantic in a and from a male perspective which he's kind of romantic from a male perspective he's into the he's into the letters yeah, yeah and he's into uh things like that he's not afraid to stick his nine inch nose in anything um the the and then you get to the comer story which is maybe the most powerful but also in some ways the most confusing story for me it seems like that would be the most straight up and normal one here's what i love about this movie more than anything i came away from it and i still don't know if i know who told the truth (laughs) i don't know if i know who told the truth in this movie well, then, I mean, I mean, probably no one told the whole no, truth. Well, nobody ever really does. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I lean toward Comer because she certainly has the most emotional baggage and the most reason to tell the truth. And I think it's there's a lot of bravery there. Uh, and obviously, there's a bit of a political statement there and and all that stuff that we can see now. Um, and maybe she was trying to make that statement back then. Maybe Marguerite was ahead of the times. I mean, this is the 1300s. It's a long time ago. Yeah. People still thought, you know, rape couldn't get people pregnant. It was science, <laughs> right? So um, we were we were really ahead of the curve as a race, as a, as a you know, people back then. But I, I, I struggled with some of her aspects of the story. And this is a bit controversial because I think she was in love with the driver character. Because the Damon character is such a, he's such a, a, a bull. 
like he's such a bull in a cage. He's such a come home, lay down, let me take care of business. There's one scene in the movie that's maybe the most appalling scene to me. He's like, you, you'll, he will not be the last man you know. Yeah, that was oh, yeah. rough. Yeah, yeah. I, I was like, Ugh, that's so gross, man. <laughs> but I'm yeah. Why would you even say it like that? That even sounds bad. But but what I think my favorite thing about the movie though is is that struggle with pride because Damon's character is constantly struggling with pride in this. Like everything for him is an affront to his his pride, to his uh, reputation, to how important he is, and he's so selfish in so many ways. The driver yeah, like- character. Like when those guys are talking when he's being knighted and he's like, shh, quiet, quiet. Like that was the point where I was like, oh, God, this guy's got an ego. Yeah. Well, even, even Ben Affleck's character, you know, he comes in to bow in front of him. He's like, oh, God, not this creep again. <laughs> oh, yeah. And, and he's it, at, like, you got to get closer like, if you're going to kneel yeah. to me. <laughs> yeah. Move closer just to kind of get a one up on him. Yeah. Because he's just he's such a, a prick. He's just he's just a he's just a born prick. I mean, and that can be deciphered as a strong leadership. Certainly, it's clear he has leadership ability. Uh, he's not afraid of a fight. Uh, he loses all sue. his fights, though. Yeah, he does. But he's willing to sue like it's nobody's business, mm-hmm. uh, which is just funny to see in this time period. You just don't really see that that much. in these- On oh, the hammer early. <laughs> yeah. it, it is yeah. weird. Just to digress for a second. There, What I do appreciate right from the get-go, you understand there's a legal structure through the whole thing. Because to your point, Sammy, they're talking about suing each other right in the beginning of the, or not in the beginning, but as soon as the like first conflict comes out mm-hmm. and they're suing things for, they're suing people for like reputation. Mm-hmm. They're not just suing for financial reasons, although there is financial yeah, there's land, the land involved. Yeah. Yeah. And there is property and, and worth involved in the, in the, uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for litigation, but there's also just, it's a way to possibly get your reputation back without having to go the route of the duel itself. Um, which again is something that Scott's kind of uh, attacked before in his first film uh, with the duelist, which is about the same type of things in some ways about pride and, and challenges and reputation and what these things mean to people back then. As far as we've come as a culture, uh, we haven't come that far. There's still these kind of, duels in the media and people challenging people and, and stuff like that it still happens. Maybe not to certainly not to the level that the duel in this film goes to. Um, but the movie is also a movie about for me, the dominance of masculinity and violence and how women had to deal with that. Um, this is a very masculine film in a lot of ways i don't know if you guys felt that but i oh, did. yes yes i mean it's violent it's nasty women are property. essentially yeah they're property mm-hmm. for the lack of a better word <laughs> and it's it's a tough world that i can't imagine having a daughter i can't imagine doing some of the things that men have to do to their daughters for their daughters um it's just uh it, it's it's a brutal unsophisticated world uh, that thinks it's civilized. And I think that's some of the most fascinating parts about it. I think the conversations that are had, the politics, they're actually really good political conversations. I think about why they need this land, the dowry, why I want this to hang on to this for the dowry, you know, all these kinds of things. And normally that kind of stuff, I'm just kind of like, you know, I don't really, I don't really care. Just get me to the next battle. 
but a lot of the fighting is going on behind closed doors at tables here as much as the violence is going on outside in the fields. So I really like that. I did. Um, but yeah, I mean, my initial thoughts are, I think it's very well done. Although I do think the film is a tad long and hangs around a little too long in spots. Okay. Uh, I, I was a little confused on my initial reaction, not just the first 20 minutes. I think as soon as the film was over, I kind of had to sit there for a little bit and take it all in narratively. I thought the film was a bit of a mess. I know it's a three act style in the vein of Rashomon. I mean, I picked up on that, the telephone game, but without the ambiguity of what happened, right? So there, there is, <laughs> there is a rape or an assault that occurs. You say, Sammy, you don't know who to believe. I, I think Scott wants you to know it's the third story because when you get to chapter three, the words, the truth linger on for much longer. So I, I think they're showing their hand. Um, yep. And I thought everybody was trying to add mystery to what was otherwise going to be a straightforward story. That's why I asked that question, Brad, is narratively, does this thing make sense? Or is the three story structure just sort of a crutch for something to rely on when you, you kind of take a step back and go, well, this is just about a guy who raped another guy's wife and then they have to settle it via a duel. And so that's pretty straightforward. And, and the original story is pretty straightforward too. I mean, it, it happened. Um, then, then I started to think of really about the movie and the question whether some of the messiness was intentional. And, and a great example, I think Matt Damon's performance gets better and better as the movie goes on. And I'm wondering if that was intentional. Um, and then there's this tagline in the advertising, the true story of a woman who defied a nation and made history. That's what this, that's what they're promoting with this film, right? But the film doesn't give Marguerite much focus until her story. Um, and the majority of the film, one could say, is really about the friendship and rivalry between Jean and Jacques. That's most of the movie. Um, even during Marguerite's story, that is still a main focus. It's, it's really the back and forth between those two men. And then that duel, uh, what was really at stake? So what happened to Marguerite after the duel, um, riding in the shadow of her husband who just championed her in her vision of the story that really hit me. And I think there's this deep criticism of society and even the effects of things like the me too, me too movement. I think that messiness is all intentional. And I think Ridley Scott is saying something very specific uh, about us today. And so my mind and, and just sitting here thinking about like, why, why is it framed that why, way? Why does it end the way it does? And why does her story play out differently than the others? And I started thinking about Ronan Farrow. Uh, you guys know who he is, right? Okay. Yeah. So Ronan Farrow reported extensively for the New Yorker on allegations against Harvey Weinstein and um, the sexual harassment and abuse, right? So he had a best-selling book, uh, Catch and Kill, had a podcast that I think was um, named after the same thing. And it was basically sort of documenting the efforts of Weinstein as agents to, to silence all of his investigative journalism. Um, and in 2018, Farrow because he was reporting on all of this, won the Pulitzer Prize for public service. 
Okay. And he made money as an executive producer for the HBO Max documentary, Catch and Kill the Podcast Tapes. He, he also went on and went after Woody Allen. There's, you know, you can research that entire story. And so you have this champion of women's rights who is benefiting in so many ways from his exposure of men's bad behavior. But what about the women who went through all of that? Um, what, are, what are they getting out of it? And yeah, their story is told, and in some fashion, you know, some justice is had, but are they receiving the same benefit and accolade as Ronan? And if Ronan made a movie about Ronan, would it be similar to Matt Damon's part of the film? So I, I, think, I think that's the most interesting thing to me, is it's basically saying, hey, we have all these men out there who are exposing the behavior of men and even championing it. But at the end of the day, it's the men who receive the benefit of the situation and the women are still living in the shadows and they're just trying to survive. Right. Um, and, and it's good because maybe their sacrifice laid the groundwork so that the next person doesn't have to go through it. But as a society, that's pretty kind of fucked up because here's, you know, these people who are receiving all this glory, fame and money, and they didn't have as much on the line outside of their pride than what she was risking as a result of going through all of this. So I, I think the screenplay has a layer to it that you just don't find in today's dramas and couple that with strong direction in cinematography. You just have something deeper than your typical sort of dramatic period piece. And, well, and I, Oh, go ahead. Well, I, I also wanted to jump in because before we forget this at the end, they also like cut away to like, the the cathedral like notre dame yeah in paris like being like renovated and stuff and i know that's on purpose like so oh yeah they, they do the like, you know the cross and everything yeah, and but is that like like he's looking up at the church and it's like the concert the you know we saw the part where the church is basically all obviously all men and and i was like well what does that mean do we, do you all have an answer for that? Cause I know it's gotta be something cause you don't just show that for no reason. Um, but I, I was just like, is that just because it's controlled by men in this whole world Abs right now? Absolutely. I, I, th I think the movie's trying to say something about how events are interpreted. That's part of it, right? That's the Rashomon part, but it's yeah, also yeah. who benefits from those movements. So I, I really think it's a scathing indictment of not just men who behave badly, but of how men benefit from the exposure of this behavior. And I think that's why they're showing the church. The church benefits from sin, right? Yeah. Um, Matt Damon is benefiting from this scenario. Yeah, he, his life was on the line, um, but he was doing it out of his pride and there's a point in the film when you discover that if he loses this duel, she's going to be burned at the stake and he doesn't tell her that. So he says, I have a plan. We're going to fix all of this. And then when you get to it, she's like, wait a second, you're trying to tell me that if you lose this duel, then I'm going to basically leave my child as an orphan. I'm going to burn at the stake. And they tell her, oh yeah, you'll burn for like 20 minutes before you die. Yeah, which, 20 to 30 minutes. Yeah, which which is crazy to me. And well, I think Matt Damon doesn't tell her because I think honestly, Matt Damon has his character has washed his hands of her. I think yeah. if he loses, 
he doesn't care if they kill her. And from what we understand of the story, he treated her like trash the next two or three years before he got killed in the Crusades, uh, that character. So, and she went on to live a nice kind of prosperous, normal life after he died. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Good for her. Um, but I don't think, you know, he didn't tell her because he wanted her to fight with him. And then, of course, she finds out and she's completely terrified. But uh, again, I think that, you know, he's thinking if I do lose this fight, so what? I mean, I'm not out anything anyway. Oh, was he too yeah. prideful to think he was going to lose? Well, I'm certainly I certainly don't think Matt Damon's character ever thinks he's going to lose anything. Yep. But like Troy said earlier, he, he tends to lose everything. everything. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, this is this is this is the only cover. thing that he so according to the story he goes on these campaigns but the movie starts with him basically losing a battle based on a decision and then even when he goes out to another battle and he comes back and he's like hey I lost all these people and I didn't come back with any spoils of war he's going to get like 300 gold pieces but he is great on the battlefield but from a leader perspective I don't think he's a great leader because well, he's great on the battle, he's great on the battlefield in the Matt Damon story. Yes, he's only average in the Adam Driver story. Yeah, and we never see him. I don't think we ever see him in battle in the Jodie Comer story because she has no clue what he's. Yeah, doing. right. I Which think I like kind of. I, I like that part. Like yeah, she has no context of that yeah. because how would she know? Because she wasn't there. Yeah. yeah, I love that the way it opens. We think. I mean, because I'm watching it in the beginning, I'm like, well, Matt Damon's character's he's a bit of a stud. He's a guy that's going to go out there. He's going to kick some ass. He's going to do what's right. And then I realize this is his story. Sure. That's the way he's going to tell his story. Yeah. He's not going to say, uh, I made some bad decisions. Um, he doesn't have that sense of humility. He doesn't have that. in. Yeah. Him. Adam driver actually saved my life. Yeah. Yeah. He doesn't have that in him. And then you get the Adam driver story, which again is, it's a much more romantic view of everything in a weird way. It's dark, but it's a, there's a moment in that one where he's saying that, you know, it's not the first wife that's been raped. So somebody says something about, you know, wives being raped and I love her. Doesn't that mean anything? And I, I had some confusion with all that stuff, but again, it's a different time. You know, I guess maybe back then, I mean, maybe you could fight for something that was property. I guess a female was just property. Oh no, it absolutely. So that's the other thing to keep in mind here is that um, the, the, the third part of the story obviously is, is done in such a way that I think it has a 2021 filter or lens through it because you had made a comment, Sammy, that, and and I think it's pretty interesting that maybe she was in love with the Adam driver character. I don't think she was in love with any of the men. I think she was in love with her independence and being away from that. So she, I I think that comes through. I don't, because she makes a comment the first time she meets him and even when she's dancing with Matt Damon saying, look, I can just throw a smile that way. And he thinks he's the world of himself. She knows exactly what he is. Um, and I'm, I'm sure there's some fondness or some attraction to it, but I don't think she looks at that as love. I, I think she knows exactly what it is. It's like, Oh, that's a good looking guy. That's all. I don't, I don't think she's in love with him. I think, I think she does love that time period where she's on her own and Matt Damon's out, you know, um, fighting a war and she's managing the property and she's making decisions. But again, hanging out with the mother-in-law. Oh boy. <laughs> oh wow. Yeah. Talk about a villain. Um, <laughs> but I, I, I just, I find again that fascinating, but I also know that's from 2021 storytelling. And if you're taking Liberty or something of that, I'm, I'm sitting there going, okay, at that time frame, that was property. 
right? And so yeah. I don't think she was ever in a position realistically to make those decisions. Um, I, I, I think, it, I think it's interesting though, that, I mean, the little moments from the perspectives, Yeah, the, the, you know, Adam driver story, the little peck on the lips, it lingers a lot longer, uh, not the kiss, but the look and the Matt Damon's looking at him and looking at her and looking at him in the Jody Comer story. It's much quicker. There's a look, but it's a much quicker. Okay. There was a little something there, but I'm moving on. Yeah, I, I, I just, I, you know, I love this. I mean, that's what I love about Rashomon. I love that, you know, perspective is everything and courts of law and everything. People can tell their story and it's how you tell the story that tells people if you're guilty or not guilty of a, a crime or a, some type of accusation. It's not always if you are or not. It's not it's not as black and white as is he guilty or not guilty. It's really as gray as how was that story told? Well, and, and see, I might disagree with you a little bit because I think that's the fascinating part of the film is in, in this film, I think Adam Driver's guilty. Now, there's there's some questions at the end I have about things he says during the duel. But what I find fascinating here, and, and that's what I struggled with a little bit, is, is this a film about introducing ambiguity into a horrific scene and then trying to get the perspective of everybody who participated or is Ridley Scott and Matt Damon and Cole and, and Ben Affleck, I mean, and I'm thinking about them kind of forming the, the narration or the narrative style itself. Are they trying to say, look, there's no question of what happened. Now, somebody may have interpreted something differently and thought they got permission, right? So um, maybe Adam Driver thinks he got permission to do whatever he wants. He obviously acts that way. But I think they're saying there's no question that a rape occurred. I think the bigger question is, this is a world of men. When this happens, um, how do women survive it? And then are, are we really paying attention to the fact that even when something is vindicated or when you cast a light on something so heinous, it's still the men that come out looking good and benefiting from this and the, and the women are still in the background. And that applies to today. And like I said, that's why I thought about that Ronan Farrow thing, because I've been reading some recent things where people are kind of going, wait a second, he's, he's making this money, he's getting these deals and everything else, and can anybody name all the women that went through these events? Yeah, what's Ashley Judd getting? I'm from Kentucky. I know Ashley. Yeah, Ashley but I, I mean, the story and the discussion is always about Ronan and his Pulitzer, but it's not about the people who had to go through that story in order for him to get it. So is is the Me Too movement being criticized a little bit by saying, we're not focusing on the right things here and we're not yeah. acknowledging like the true heroes Ronan yeah. Ronan and you know, did his part in maybe shining a light on this bad behavior. Um, and, but what happened to these people that actually experienced it? And, yeah. and I think that's where, I think that's where the movie is really interesting. I think in that duel though, when, and I know that you, you guys don't worry about spoilers. So yeah, I'm just going to say, I mean, when he's saying I did not rape her, I did not rape her. I don't think in, in I I think he did, but I don't think in driver's mind it was rape. It was never rape. It was just something that he should be allowed to do. Yeah, I I because when they show his side of the story, he definitely rapes her in the context yeah. of what we think it is. But I think yeah. in his mind, he had every right to be able to do that because he's a man. Because he, and because he's in love. Because he can't yeah. control his. Oh, yeah. uh, 
yep. nine inch nose. Well, he, yep. he makes a comment like she did her typical protest, but then it still, you know, went yeah, down. Yeah, which is, yeah, because he's telling Ben F like this because I'd imagine that a lot of women that these guys sleep with probably protest a little bit and they're like, ah, oh, can you know, just well, a tip, just a tip. It's interesting. Like, I, and I, I love that because one of the, um, like the, the scene that really boiled my blood a little bit was <laughs> the mother when she's going after Marguerite and saying, what are you doing? My son's life is on the line. Like she doesn't care about her either. Um, and she's basically saying my son's life on the line. Do you, and, and tells her, you, you don't think I've ever been raped. I've been raped before. And I shut my mouth. Like that's, that's our lot. She, she is walking complacency, like in human form and outside of all of that stuff. I, again, I think that's a very intentional speech and character moment where, you know, our screenwriters and director are saying, here's another, you know, you're thinking about the events that happen, that's evil, but what is just as evil is this walking complacency telling you to shut up. Like right. w- what is more evil? <laughs> yeah. Well, well I mean, she's also, she's also being like, well, I was able to overcome it. Why can't you like, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I could be just fine. Well, I, think you. I think it's what's interesting what they do here because there's also the best friend of Marguerite's who also is kind of like, well, you kind of said he was good looking. Yeah. What'd you think kinda, was going to happen? Yeah. yeah so what you think was going to happen. So there's all this complexity asking for an aspect of it. Yeah. Yeah. There's all of these aspects and I'm not saying any of that's right. Right. I mean, I, I've, I've never, you know, I would never back any of this behavior, but in this era, this is how these men see these women as property. And you can see these little tidbits kind of thrown. And I, and I admire the Marguerite character. I think she's a strong, she's obviously our hero here. Yeah. And the character we're supposed to root for, but there's always these, I, th- I think there's an interesting thing Scott does. And I don't know if it's on purpose, but with Ridley Scott an 85 year old filmmaker, I got to believe it is. There's these lingering moments where the camera just kind of hangs on Comer's face a little bit, maybe just a minute too long. And it's almost like she's working something out behind her mind. And I'm not saying she's got a big grandiose plan because she's putting her life on the line. It's not, she's not that, you know, she can't predict how this is going to go. Um, driver, her, her husband is old. Yeah. You know, he's her, a, he's an old man and yeah, Adam her, driver is not. Yeah. He's a formidable force. So it's quite yeah. honestly driver could kill Damon and almost does, but it's also, like I said, it's, it's a story about violence and rage and, how these things kind of went out no matter what. And although at the end of the film, we're seeing a hand raised and people get on horses and Matt Damon's got a gash in his leg and he's beat to hell and everything else. And right off into the sunset, we know as an audience that it's even, it's going to probably be even worse yeah. for Marguerite because now the reality of everybody else looking away and his pride being damaged. He's probably never going to treat her in any way, shape or form, even close to how he did before. And he didn't treat her great to begin with. Well, and and I, I think that's, that's a really astute point because they're writing off and everybody thinks it's fixed. Like, Hey, God is determined who was telling the truth. She was raped. Right. But what ends up happening is she's writing in the shadow. And again, you, you were asking about, you know, they're pointing to the church or writing to the church. I think everybody at that point goes, well, well, God just fixed everything. God exposed who was telling the truth. And so we're good, wipes their hands of it. And I really do think that's a little bit of a criticism even to today. Like Ridley Scott 
would would do that and he's he's trying to say something which basically says yeah you've had these movements and you think you fixed these things but have you really and are we just back to um a normalcy that shouldn't exist where these people are still sitting in the background and the men are kind of taking credit for the victories mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah yeah i mean it's it's a smarter movie than I think on the surface, it looks like a very simple medieval yeah, kind of action film, but it's really a political thriller slash social commentary, social commentary. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's probably a good way to put it in, in the script on it. I, I was writing down so many lines that really stuck with me. Like there's no right. There's only the power of men. I mean, that yeah. kind of comes up early and you're like, whoa. I, and, and what's amazing is it's, it's not one sequence. These lines come up over and over again when uh ben affleck is giving adam driver advice and says look the common mind has no capacity for this nuance just deny 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 that's all you need to do and it'll go away which is modern litigation too <laughs> yeah for the for the record we like i say we haven't come that far and there's the one moment in the film too that really repulses me where he's being sued he's being sued and i'm not repulsed by the idea that affleck has four women in his bedroom and he asked the other man to take his pants off but i am repulsed by the idea that he says, well, I'll just make you captain and it'll all go. Away. <laughs> yeah. But that's like, how it works. Ah. That's, yeah, that's how, how it works. works right? Yeah. Yeah. And it still to this day works that way. Absolutely. Well, you can sometimes what? give somebody a title and say, well, that's all gone now. Yep. Well, I, this is like, I was thinking about this when I was watching it. I don't know if you guys have copped up with some of the news about um, Activision and Blizzard and all yeah. that stuff. Uh, Bobby Kotick is, is their CEO. And, um, so they were just bought by for about $70 billion. And at some point in time, you know, the reason that their company is in all this trouble is because basically he bred a culture that um, let all this thing happen. And he owns, I think it was something, I forget what his owners, but he's going to make out with $400 million after this is all over. And he walks into the sunset. Yeah, You're Like that's how things happen. Men at the top of these places get $400 million a golden parachute upon a golden parachute laced with diamonds. And, um, you know, and this was 500 years ago, but we're still going through right now. We're just men get to just ride off in the sunset. Yeah. And um, what I, what I, what I think is funny is you, you mentioned some shots where they linger on Jodie Comer and her performance. I don't think she's got a grand scheme of things I think she's trying to figure it out because she makes this one comment where she eventually says a child needs his mother more than a mother needs to be right. Where at some point she recognizes sort of the game that she's playing with these accusations and everything else and goes, you know what? It may not be worth it if I lose my child. And as a mother, I like that takes priority over everything else. I mean, there may be a level of vengeance in her eyes, though. Maybe yeah. that's what I maybe meant to say, because there's certainly obviously there's anger. It's it's that and, it's that being right. Like It's like I was wrong yeah. then I want to prove it. But she comes to the conclusion that at some point being right could cost her like the things that she cares the most about. And at some point you get this hint that she doesn't kind of want to play in this world of men in their games and goes in in. And you get that hint where she goes, okay, maybe the mom might be right if this is what ends up happening to me, which again, I think is a social comment on, um, <laughs> like you said, Brad, it's th- these bad things get exposed and these men walk away with 400 million bucks. And it's like, what, 
what the hell is going on? Yeah. Something's wrong. Yeah. I mean, wives being right. Come on, guys. Yeah, We've all been there. I've, I will be <laughs> the first to tell you, I would rather be happy than right <laughs> when it comes to marriage. So I will always I'll, choose I'll happy. be the first to tell you, I'd rather just be wrong. Yeah. yeah, I'll be wrong all the time. Absolutely. I'll just be wrong, and you know, I'm going to walk away, and I'm going to have a chicken wing. <laughs> That's uh, really all I want in life. I really, I'm not that complicated. I really you want not. the big piece of chicken, like Chris Rock said. You just want the big piece of chicken. Yeah, yeah. I'm not a complicated guy. <laughs> no, uh, the the other thing that struck me as odd was the trial sequence. We kind of mentioned it a little bit. Um, that that entire trial is just feels absurdist. I mean, it felt like something in a it Monty does. Python skit. Um, and we've already said the line where a, a rape cannot cause a pregnancy. You can only get pregnant when you enjoy it. That's science. Yep. And you're like, what? They asked that question a lot in this film. They asked, did you, did you have, did you find pleasure? Yeah. Was it pleasurable for you? And that's a very important thing for them because if there's pleasure, then there's a chance that the child was conceived by the Adam driver character. And hence it's not rape. Yes. And hence it's not rape. Yeah. It's, Cause if you like it, it's not rape. Right. Yeah. It's like, your mind is like, you know, you're like, what is going on? It's Did crazy. You, I, I don't know. Are you, are either of you Catholic? I grew up Catholic. Yep. Okay. So Catholic, did you, so. did you have, did you have a Catholic wedding? Uh, no. So I grew okay. up Catholic, but when I was in high school, <laughs> That's I was why like, you're not a Catholic. <laughs> well, no, I just, I was like, Oh, Hey, there's other denominations. Let me go and see what they are. And I ended up, uh, uh, being Quaker for about four or five years. Okay. So when you, get married in the Catholic church. You have to go through like these marriage counseling mm-hmm. with uh, the priest. We, we had to do that too. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Basically a lot of, but I, I don't know. Cause I, I didn't I've only been married once and it was in the Catholic church, but it, you're sitting here, you're talking to the priest about marriage and you're like, a, this guy's never had sex. B, he's never been married. How is he going to tell me anything that's remotely relevant? But that was, just, that was the whole thought I had in this trial. It's like, how do these guys even know? Like, they have no idea. They're men, and they are in the Catholic. They're supposed to not have sex or anything like that. It's just unbelievable, <laughs> this. And, again, like we said, it's like the science that they use. It's like, how? I get it. It was the 14th century, but my God. Yeah. I mean, it's an institution, right? It's a belief system that is still pervasive to this day. Well, Uh, the Catholic church is also very, very known for its science too. (laughs) Not not just Catholicism, but you know, my wife is a very devout uh, Baptist and uh, missionary Baptist at that. And, you know, they honestly, they honestly, they honestly believe that, you know, the 13 people that go to that church are the only people that are going to go to heaven. And, uh, you know, I don't believe that. I don't, uh, I don't even know if I believe in an afterlife as I get older. I want to believe more and more in an afterlife. I can tell you that <laughs> I think all of us do, but yeah. I don't know what happens. I, I just don't know. I'm the kind of person that's always going to question things. These institutions that tell us rules and the amount of people who follow these rules, it blows my mind. Sometimes it really does. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. It just blows my mind. Sometimes how people blindly follow the rules. Well, and when you take a step back, and I, I know that that trial sequence seems very absurdist, but if you think about some of these high-profile cases and any time that there's sex or something involved, at, at the end of the day, that we haven't come that far. <laughs> I mean, we, we do know now that uh, whether or not you enjoy something does not you know <laughs> dictate whether it was rape or not. Yeah. But if you think about some of the questions that they're asking, et cetera, and then I guarantee if you go back and look at like some of these 
I don't know what you would call celebrities airing their dirty laundry and especially in court battles or public smear campaigns. It's ridiculous what gets shared and then what is considered right and wrong. And you take a step back and go, this is just a circus. Yeah. Which again, we have as a society, European, American, whatever you want to say, we really haven't come that far. No, it's just, it's just the circus acts have changed. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I, I mean, I, I'm not, yeah, I'm not saying anything out of turn there. I mean, I'm just being honest. I mean, I think of the OJ Simpson stuff. Yes. I think, of, yeah. you know, uh, Trump stuff most recently, this insurrection thing, we have not really come very far as, as, as far as I think we wish we, or we think we have come. Um, we're not too far removed from these two guys getting on horses and taking a couple of lances and going at it. We're not really that far from that. No, it's uh, it's just more it's more psychological. It's more behind closed doors. It's done with verbal sparring. Um, and you know, and it's all it's all dick measuring at the end of the day. It's <laughs> it, all dick it measuring. It's always some type of lance yes, going into yeah. somebody else. Yeah. Yep. The sword always, is either your dick or a sword. There's some type of penetration going on, no yep. matter what. And yep. it's, it's, <laughs> I don't, I don't understand it, but it's been going on since the beginning of time. It seems like something we as a species can't escape. Yeah, no. <laughs> well, especially with guys in charge, you know, it's one of, it's true, one of those things true. when I, I, this, I love these kind of films because they make me put things into perspective. So I'll, I'll give you a great example. Uh, I, I'm a pop culture nerd and I, I love my Marvel, my DC comics, my, my star Wars, you know, just as much as Jackie Chan, and everything else, everything. Um, Everything, right? And it always <laughs> like annoys all three of us can say we are those people. Yeah. And it always annoys me when you, you start, you know, to go down something that you like, like Captain America, Daredevil, and all of a sudden it's like, well, we're we're taking this and and we're putting a female lead to it, or this is the female version of that. Uh I think Indiana Jones, you know, five or whatever is coming out and they're like, Oh yeah, we're gonna we're gonna have a strong female lead character. You you start to go through this and I, I start to get annoyed going why, why do we have to get to the point of the answer to equality in media is just taking what was typically a guy character and saying, well, let's just turn it into the female version and then we're done. Like, I I almost find that insulting to a little bit where it's like, oh, you think that is going to take care of everything when at the end of the day, it's still being directed by a guy. It's still being written by a guy. And then if it makes a gazillion dollars, that's going to a bunch of guys in the boardroom. Um, Yeah. A bunch of men wearing suits. Yep. Yeah. And and I like movies like this who kind of take a step back and re-examine it and just say, you know, some of the stuff that we're doing for these causes um, just doesn't exactly make sense when you turn around and you take a step back and you look at what you're celebrating or look at what you're doing and you're not really giving a voice, um, two females in the appropriate manner and letting them create their own characters and create their own stories and giving them the right resources to do that. Um, and letting them, you know, tell their stories and their truths in such a fashion. So it's, it's crazy. Like it's some, some minutes I feel like we've done a good job in trying to correct some of that behavior and other minutes. I'm like, man, this movie, it reminds me, we, we really haven't done that much. It's well, all pop and circumstance. Like when you donate money, and then you go and you see like, oh, the CEO of this like nonprofit makes four million dollars a year. And you're like, 
Nah. So so my donation literally is 50% to the donation and 50% to the salary yeah. of the CEO. Thanks. That's awesome. Great. Yep. No, it's it's crazy. I, I did want to mention one thing. We talked, we hinted a little bit about it. Um, Ridley Scott in battle scenes. Oh my gosh, uh, I I was surprised. I shouldn't be surprised, but I'm always surprised when I watch battle scenes in Ridley Scott films. Um, how brutal they are. And there's that sequence when Matt Damon is pounding that guy's face in with chainmail, and it goes on and on and on. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, but I'll say this, and and even the duel, which apparently was somewhat accurate. It, from what I read, it really came down to whoever was going to fall over. That was the end of it because they couldn't get back up. And yeah, so they were too agile in their armor. Yeah. So Adam driver, they, depending in, in the real life story, that character, um, they don't know if he tripped, he fell, or if he was actually stricken down. But as soon as he got down, that, that was it. And he yeah. died. Yeah. Um, Cause in those days, if you went down in a suit of armor, you typically weren't getting back up. Exactly. Unless a couple of people are coming to pick you up. But um, I, I love that he will take these war scenes or these battle scenes and um, he's he's has a, I don't know, a real talent for staging the violence in a way that you feel every blow, but you don't walk away kind of glorifying it. You, yeah. you feel like you just went through war and it's really exhausting, but sort of an artistic good way. Like you, you appreciate yeah. what you yeah. saw, but you go, man, that you don't want to you don't want to be in that. Yeah. That moment when the horse kicks Matt Damon in the head. Oh, oh gosh, <laughs> I felt that. <laughs> oh, that was amazing. I was like, man, I'm sitting there thinking while I'm watching. I'm like, these guys are crazy getting near these horses. They're trying to get back up. Surely somebody, oh, there it goes right there. It's like, finally, somebody showed me what I knew has to happen. Uh, you know, that horse kicked him right in the head, knocked him back about 10 feet. Oh, yeah. Um, no, it's crazy. I don't yeah, know. What it, two, I think they took two months to shoot, but to plan the final duel, they wanted to make it something special. And it's not. It's not like a uh, Yun Wu Ping fight or a Jackie Chan choreographed fight, or it's nothing like that. But it's still pretty magnificent for what it is. Oh um, yeah, absolutely. I think the sword play is good. It feels real. It's not fancy. Um, swords did break. Swords do break. For the record, uh, I've seen know, Force and Fire. Yeah, <laughs> I mean steel. If you hit steel with steel, sooner or later, some piece of steel is going to give. Yeah. Um. The jousting he, moments were incredible. Like you felt yeah. the impact of those things. Oh yeah. And the like you're saying, the sound, the sound just like hits you in the chest and you're like, I oh. feel like I just got hit with the joust. <laughs> My favorite thing about the jousting is the fact that they get hit so hard that they're literally perpendicular with the ground. I mean, they're not perpendicular, they're horizontal. They're laying on the completely horse. Completely back on the horse. <laughs> yeah. like, oh, you can just feel that pain. That pain of being hit with something like that is just unbelievable. And you know, a lot of people in those days with the jousting and stuff, they would break their arms and their wrist and their hands. Yeah. For obvious reasons, you're riding a two, you know, a ton, a ton of horse meat towards somebody at, you know, 10 or 15 miles an hour and you're sticking them with a stick. I think, at, I think at one point it might've been Matt Damon shield. There was the piece of the joust that was stuck into it and stuck went through. In it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Which is yeah. crazy. Which is I mean, that, and that's the kind of the small details that that's kind of awesome that when you take two months to do this, like you get stuff like that. One of my other favorite things about the joust and the duel is that the young king is giddy. Yeah. Because we do know for a fact from history that a lot of kings and a lot of aristocrats and so forth, this was their entertainment. You know, gladiator battles and things like that. This was entertaining. Um, so, you know, judge it how you want to judge it. But, I mean, there wasn't any TV. There was books. 
and lots of women, I guess, for certain people. But uh, the the king, he's he's like so giddy. He's like so happy to to be there and see this violence. It's pretty amazing, and everybody is. A lot of people are cheering on the violence, right? Oh, you got people up in trees trying to watch it and stuff. Yeah. So so I never understood the moment where she keeps looking at these people in the tree. I think it's a weird moment in the movie because she looks up at them and she sees them all up in there and then they kind of cut back to them getting on the horses and stuff and she looks back up at these people in the tree and nothing really happens with that. But I don't want to keep wondering it's, why she keeps... It's a, it's a bunch of maidens. Uh, they're all females in the tree. Oh, yeah. oh okay. Yes, yeah, so they're all female. There, you go. there yeah. we go. So, right. Whoo, totally went over my head. There you go. <laughs> yeah, they're I'm, real dirty. It's hard to tell. So she's fighting. So in her opinion, she's... Uh, I guess my perspective of that is she's won something for them. They just don't know it yet. Yeah, I I think there's that or she's trying to piece it. Yeah, I think so. I mean, that goes back to that criticism where I I think, again, it's a this stuff gets exposed or or she wins, quote unquote. Right. Um, and that's the heartbreaking thing is, you know, she did it for these these ladies watching up in the trees. But then as they write out, everybody's just cheering and going nuts over Matt Damon and she's just in the background. Right. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And Matt Damon's character is such a buffoon that he really thinks that he's won his dignity back and everything else. But we all know that he really hasn't. Or maybe he has. I don't know. They don't really show that part of the story. Yeah. Maybe it is really that simple back then. I'm sure it was. I'm sure it's one of those things where as many people are talking about what went down and him, you know, being right uh, by God, you know, God decided and Matt Damon lived. I'm I'm sure he uh, he capitalized on that to a great extent. Yeah. What an awful and humiliating way to go for drivers. Oh, God. Then they hung him upside down naked. Yeah. Oh, my God. Well, you got that land back um, because, uh, I mean, obviously they profited from the duel. So It's the only time I ever saw two nine-inch noses. (laughs) 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 Well, uh, what other notes did you guys have on this one? I I don't have anything else, but I got to say – Ridley Scott making a movie like this at 82, 83, 84 years of age. Impressive. It, pretty impressive. I'm I'm very excited to see House of Gucci. I've heard it's over the top. I'm fine with that because the counselor was over the top. So yeah. that he's still doing this. And these guys, like I said, I just a few weeks back watched Benedetta, the Verhoeven film, which I know Brad has seen. I don't think Troy's seen it yet. Not yet. These guys being relevant filmmakers still at this age it, it's it uh, there's a reason why they're masters there's a reason why these guys are master filmmakers and uh i don't think this is really scott's greatest film but i think this is a really solid film in his filmography that i think people will be talking about for years to come and people will be saying hey man did you ever see the last duel because nobody nobody really saw it yeah so yeah. you're going to be this is going to be one of those films people are going to show people because I don't think a lot of people would would even waste their time on it. They either saw the haircuts and walked away, or or whatever. But, but man, I, I would tell your audience, my audience, and anybody that would listen, do not sleep on this thing. That's well, a good segue. Um, so obviously, we asked the question. I mean, this thing bombed big time last year. Nobody went to the theaters to see it. It cost the studios a lot of money. So I'll start with you, Sammy. I mean, just based on those comments, is twenty twenty one's the last duel of bomb? No, it is not a bomb. It's uh, a film that was released at the wrong time. And uh, I think it'll go on to live a nice long life. 
uh, behind the scenes. Certainly longer than most of the films that came in above it in the box office. If you tell me in 30 years people are going to be talking about the Adams Family 2, the animator thing. <laughs> no, no. Uh, maybe, the, maybe James Bond, but that's probably about it. Yeah. Maybe, yeah. We'll not Halloween Kills. <laughs> no, <laughs> uh, uh, even though I like Halloween Kills, it's not going to be Halloween Kills. Yeah. It, it, I, out of all those films that we named earlier, this is the most the highest quality film of that bunch. Maybe, oh, wow. Well, I haven't seen No Time to Die yet, so I can't speak to that. So okay. I think Troy's seen it. I think he's on. Yeah. One. Have you, I've seen it. I've seen okay, it. Okay, so two, two of the three of us have seen it. I can't speak to that. I'm sure I'll like it. I like most Bond films, but this film is certainly a, a much better film than it, it deserved at the box office. I just think it's a movie. To, I just don't think, man, as much as I hate to say this, I sound a little bit like an old man when I say this. I know we go to the movies, but I just think a lot of adults just don't go to the movies anymore. Not unless it's to take the kids and it's yeah. a comic book film or it's an animated film or it's a, a film like Free Guy. I mean, that's, I know that that's true. I know that drives people crazy, but I think that's just what the movies are right now. And if you really want a piece of quality filmmaking, you have to seek it out. I, I was amazed when we saw the tragedy of Macbeth um, recently. How many people were there? So that that was older people or younger people. Um, a little bit of both. Well, I, I gave my kids the choice: Do you want to see Scream or Macbeth? They're like Macbeth. I'm like, cool. Now they were the yeah. youngest in the audience, but it wasn't just a bunch of older folks. It seemed like yeah. there was a bit of a mix i remember being heartbroken when i went to see slumdog millionaire and it was all geriatrics and my 30 year old that is depressing <laughs> no young people in there except me i'm okay man yeah the buffet start we, we got to eat by four <laughs> <laughs> all right brad final thoughts is is uh the last dual bomb uh absolutely not um this yeah i mean it, i Ridley Scott's one of those directors that his movies will at least be have some something that's interesting in them. And I think this one, again, like Sammy said, for to be 83 or 84 years old and, and putting out stuff like this, this movie, he directed the shit out of this movie. And I know he put in a lot of work for this. movie, So it wasn't like he was just some token director on this movie. He directed this movie and he did a hell of a job. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is just impressive on that level. But the quality of this movie is really good. It's we've talked about this movie for an hour and it was like nothing to us. Um, and um, I I think the four main characters, uh, three mainly, and then Ben Affleck, I mean, they're great performances. And I, I would be curious to see if if one of them got a nomination for for something. I think they all deserve it, but be curious to see. So it's not a bomb. Yeah, I, I agree with you both. I, I think it's an interesting comment that you made, Sammy. I'm, I agree with you. Everybody's I, I, th- I think this is going to find an audience as it goes on. Uh, I think it was released in the wrong month. Uh, compared- this is a December movie. December yes. movie. Yep. I, I think it's perfectly timed in terms of the year it's released. Or, you know, even it's if it's released in the first part of this year, would have been great. But I, I think it's so topical Um, and I can see, I can see Ridley Scott's frustration. Like I, it's very palpable. I I understand it where he's saying, Hey, I've got this message and I'm trying to get it out there and why he targets millennials a little bit, because I do think he really wanted to have this dialogue and conversation with a wider audience and say, can we, can we just take a minute and look at what's going on? Because we're, we're suffering from the same things 
um, that this duel represents. And you can see the frustration of how many people went and saw this? Nobody. Okay, that that would be upsetting, especially if you thought that you really stuck and landed a message that wasn't preachy. It was very nuanced and it and it was very smart. Um, I, I could see why he would be, you know, a frustrated director at that point. But I agree 100%. This is not a bomb. And I really hope that people give this one a chance. I, I know run times like this can be intimidating, but I'm telling you, it is a super fascinating film. I agree. I agree yeah. with 100%. Yeah, I mean, it's such a fascinating film that if I didn't have to go to work tomorrow, I'd watch it again right now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> The only uh, thing I, re- I lament that Scott typically does commentaries on his uh, Blu-ray re- and DVD releases and stuff, and he didn't do one for this one. That that's probably still me. mad. I guess so. <laughs> He's really. I, mean, mad. I get it, man. Like, like Look, you, it, like he 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 put his vision out there and probably executed it as probably as well as he thought he could do, and the product probably came out as well as he thought it was going to. And he probably looked at it and said, "This is going to be massive." Or, yeah. or it's going to be cr- it's going to be in the news crickets. for the yeah. dialogue, you know, that yeah. they're talking about. So I think a lot of his commentary might have also been he misguided because he I think he meant to say that we are a general. And I do believe this, that young kids now are more fascinated with the 10 minute clip of somebody's family going to Disney World than they are a narrative story. Yeah, I agree with that. Well, and I mean, choice choice now is huge right you can sit at home you can sit at home and watch anything and everything you ever wanted yeah and going to the theater i love it and i will continue to go to the theater to the day i die but some people don't agree with that and (laughs) it costs a hundred dollars you know like minimum. if you take a family of four and all three of us are family of four people Mm-hmm. If you take a family of four, it's a hundred bucks. And yep. if you start getting into snacks and everything else, it easily can turn into 150 to sometimes 170 bucks. I think I spent 170 bucks at one movie because I took some of my kids, my son's friends and I didn't make the parents pay, which maybe I should have. I don't know. <laughs> it's an expensive hobby right now. It is. It is an expensive hobby. It yep. is what George Lucas and Steven Spielberg said. It's a Broadway play. Yep. Going to the movies is like going to a play and on Broadway. No. But I don't I, I, I do not want films like this to go away. A hundred no. million dollar original. Well, I won't say wholly original, but it's, you know, not a it's original compared to what was released yes, yeah. the month that it came and, and out. I, so. And I like those films, too. Yeah. And I, I just wish we could have all of it. And yeah. I'm afraid that we're not. And I look at this film and I, I say it's like how how I don't know. I wish it was just bigger. I wish it was bigger. Yeah, mm-hmm. I agree. Uh, well, before we talk about next week, we got uh, an email that I wanted to read. Uh, it's from our listener, Ben, and this is, he has a question in here. I think that is a great question for all three of us. Uh, but it says, Hey bombers. Wow. What an amazing last few episodes, Ben. I couldn't agree more. I, we've, I've man, I was looking at this like, the other you're day. You're like Ridley. You're like Ridley Scott. Now I masturbate. <laughs> yes. Film. Masturbate. Well, I, when was the last time, uh, we had a bomb? I, I think, I think. The last time we had one was because I bombed Pop Star, but uh, it's been a it's been a yeah. fantastic run. Yeah. Uh, so his, his email goes on. So I think I will need you guys to stop recommending movies because your podcast has caused me to get Brigsby Bear, Heaven's Gate, Writers of Justice, Raging Fire, The Blob, nineteen eighty eight. Thank goodness for Amazon gift cards. Well, Ben, right. I have 
I have the same problem when I listen to Sammy's bot podcast too. I get excited when they're like, this is streaming on Criterion. I'm like, well, great. I want to buy something. But then you buy it anyway. You like I it buy it anyway. Oh, no, I'm going to buy it. Yeah. <laughs> so he says, uh, I wanted to make sure that my last recommendation isn't forgotten. And as a hard, hardcore fan from episode one gets moved up, you owe me for all the money I've spent the last few months. Anyway, my suggestion is 2006's A Scanner Darkly. It's directed by Richard Linklater, oh. and it is based on a Philip K. Dick story. Mm. Uh, ben, that is getting moved up. We're gonna. Yep, we moved it up. We we officially moved it because I love Philip K. Dick's my favorite author. I have never seen this film, so yeah, I'm like, hey, Ben wants it. We're doing it. I have I have a complicated relationship with that movie. Oh, I got cool. it on a Netflix disc in the mail. I remember it. Ooh, very. I, I own it. I've got it on Blu-ray downstairs. It's in oh, the two watch that at all. I, yes. Actually, you know what? I might own it. <laughs> Okay, here's the question he asked. So lastly, I wanted to ask, have either of you had jobs related to the movies like working at a blockbuster or a movie theater? Thanks again for an amazing podcast. I keep telling my friends all about it. Well, thanks, Ben. Um, Brad, have you? What, what's your relationship with working with movies? Yeah, mine's a little weird. Um, when I was a staff um, employee at uh, my one of my first jobs out of college, uh, when you're a staff employee, you basically do... 99% of the work and get paid nothing. Um, so what I did for, for, for fun was go to the movies and because of my job as an auditor and stuff like that, I was able to kind of contract myself out a little bit and I would do uh, auditing work for some of the theaters and some of the studios. Um, so I would go and sit in a theater. I would count the number of people that were there, I would ensure that previews ran that were supposed to run and do stuff like that. Um, I made $25 a time. I did that. So essentially oh. it paid for my film and um, I did that for about a year and I would go pretty much every weekend. Um, I was single and trying to supplement some sort of uh, income at the time. And so I go to the movies every Saturday and count people and, make sure that the right previews ran and there was nothing wrong with them because if people don't know studios, that's part of their marketing budget and they want to ensure that what they pay is what they're getting. So they, they will send out uh, people to ensure that, you know, you do a random sample and, you know, make sure that their, their previews are being run. So I did that for about a year. It was a, it was pretty cool, but you know, you didn't get paid anything, um, but it was fun. That's awesome. What about you, Sammy? I don't have any direct relationship with working with um, retail or films in any way, but I do have a story. The uh, My brother, when he first got out of high school, they had a theater that opened up near us. The, the theaters near us had went away. If you're familiar with Louisville, everything was pretty much in the East End theater was. Mm -hmm. uh, so everything in where, where I grew up, which was Shively Pleasure Ridge Park, Valley Station area. Who PRP represent. Yeah. That the Dixie Highway area, there wasn't a theater there for a long time uh, during kind of like the middle part. So we'd have to go to the drive-in and stuff, which was not a bad thing, but it was just a different thing. So anyway, they opened up another theater called Dixie Dozen. They opened up this theater called Dixie Dozen. My the, brother, dirty, the Dirty Dozen, please. The Dirty Dozen, yeah. <laughs> My bro brother got a job there. And the great thing about the job he got there was Thursday nights, I'd get to go up there and we would watch. I would watch films with the staff. Well, the, yes, that's you'd true. have to yep. build the prints, right? Make the real, make the real. I'd see stuff like Die Hard with a Vengeance. I'd see stuff like, uh, well, anything that came out that year. I think, uh, Ghost in the Darkness and 
all kinds of stuff. I saw all kinds of stuff basically for free. Leap of Faith, the Steve Martin film. I remember that. With uh, Meatloaf. So much stuff. Yeah, with Meatloaf. Oh, yeah, R.I.P. Just would see all these films. Uh, the Green Mile, I think I saw that way. Uh, uh, what's that one? Uh, Ro- Romeo and Michelle's high, high, school, high, school, reunion. high school reunion. Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. I saw that that way. My best friend's wedding, I saw that way. So films I wouldn't normally see, right? Probably I wouldn't pay money to, but my brother would be like, hey, we're going to screen this. They sent this, uh, you know, Romeo and Michelle's high, high school reunion film to us. You want to come up? I'm like, it's free. Oh, wow. It's a single frame of a dick in there as well. Oh. <laughs> we never, never did any of that. He could have done that. Never Tyler Durdened it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It was kind of neat, though, to see the kind of backstage. Produ- I mean, it still was projection back then. It wasn't digital. It wasn't just, you know, data banks like it is now. Most well, movie theater you go to now just have the big storage yeah. data type, you know. Back then, it would be uh, six-ish canisters that would be delivered. And then Thursday afternoon, you'd have to put all, you'd string all the film. Did you work, did you work in a theater? Oh, yeah. Um, oh. So my junior senior year of high school freshman year of college worked in a movie theater so we we did all of that projectionist uh concession so dickinson theaters in wichita kansas had a couple of locations so um my bestest friend kevin got a job there too and we would work at one theater which this the the mall cinema was an 800 seater i mean it was huge wow so you know we saw like uh we we debuted batman dick tracy stuff like that and then on our days off, we'd have to go to North Rock on the other side of town and work that. So we we worked during the summer every day and holidays. Um, and that's where I got a lot of my movie posters. So um, a, a lot of times movie posters, especially in the 80s, uh, you'd have to send them back to the studio. They, 27 by 41s, they would always have instructions at the, at the bottom. It's like return. And they would get lost. And so we would take them home. Uh, and then... When I graduated from college and my parents were kind of getting into a little bit of retirement, we opened up a video store and that ran for about eight, nine, maybe 10 years. No, it was about eight years in Southern Indiana. So we owned a video store for a while. Yeah. Um, What was it called? uh, Flicks Movie Rental. Okay. We were, we were the one of the first ones, I think in Evansville that rented laser discs or there was one other shop that did it. Um, so I was so convinced when I was in high school that I was going to graduate and open a video store. That was, that was like, it was dream. tough. Like this is never going anywhere. <laughs> yeah. It was, it was tough competing with the blockbusters and stuff. Like, it, was, it was a mom and pop store and yeah. Parents well, when I was in high school, and, there was no blockbuster. Yeah. It was just mom and pop stores. Yeah. Black so, cases. Usually like I think I've talked about on our show, we would pick the film by these like little, little key fobs. Yeah. Little, yeah. You take those in the back yeah, and you take them in the back. Yep. And uh, yeah, I mean, the revenue split, revenue split killed all the mom and pop shops. Yeah, man. Those mom and pop shops are great because you go in and people would be like, hey, man, I know you like that Chuck Norris movie. Check out this movie I got here. Yeah, it was. There's so many stories. Um, Staff picks. Staff picks was a big thing. I remember that a lot. But it it was crazy how many people would come in to rent the laser disc where you're real. I mean, at that time, film buff fans. Like I said, there was there's one other store in us that did that. Nobody else carried them. And um so if you're familiar with this area, I grew up in Shively and would drive to St. Matthews to rent Laserdisc. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was that I was that guy who would drive that far. 
And then uh, was that know, about 20, 25 minutes? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Th- at least thirty minutes. That's yeah. on the other uh, side of town for you. When Wild and Woolly video was here, oh yeah, oh, I God, I really. When we moved to Clarksville, we went to Wild and Woolly a couple of. Times. I love that place. <laughs> yeah, we went to Wild Woolly all the time. It was you know thirty to forty five minute drive to rent movies that I had to bring back in a couple of days, <laughs> and I would just cram these movies in. It just anyway, it was just movie lovers will do anything for movies. Absolutely. That's a great question, Ben. No, I, it, um, yeah, I, I've always had a love for it. And quite honestly, a, a big part of my uh, DVD VHS collection is stuff that as we would circle out, I would buy it from the store or something of that nature. And then when we finally sold the store, I went through and um, took a bunch of ones that didn't rent. And surprisingly, there are a lot of foreign films. And uh, yeah, that was cool. Well, Brad, there was. I knew there was a big enough audience for revival houses and everything else. I totally quit my job and invest my 401k in one. Oh, I'm telling you right now, I would love to go back <laughs> in a time machine. I think, I think in like 10 years, I think the nostalgia will just like, cause whatever is old is new again. So yeah. I think it comes back. Well, out here, we've got the parkway and the Senator and it is amazing. Um, how many new films will show, but when they show the older films, the amount of people who will show up like next weekend, the Senator at 10 AM on Sunday is going to show Alfred Hitchcock psycho. So yeah, yeah. because it's 10 AM on a Sunday, that's what you want to watch. That's what you want to watch. Psycho. (laughs) Yep. Hey, they just showed 2001 space odyssey. Um, La Dolce Vita. Uh, what? No. God, what's the title of that film? La Dolce. Dolce Vita. Yeah, La Dolce Vita. Okay, I said it right. Yeah, they just showed that one. Uh, Brad, what are we talking about next week? We are going to do a sequel next week, Troy. Awesome. Um, We're going to do a sequel to what some would say is John McTiernan's best movie, Predator. We're doing Predator 2. Ooh, that's a heavy hitter. Not directed by John McTiernan. Uh, no. That's a Stephen Hopkins film, I believe. Directed by the same uh, director of The Ghost in the Darkness. Yes, what I mentioned. Oh, yes, there. that's right. Yeah, uh, that's a 1990 <laughs> film. Um, and we will have a special guest with us next week, but we will not announce that right now. You have to listen to find out. Yeah, we're, we're hoping we can make it all work. Um, we got a couple huge, things up our sleeve. Huge fan of Predator 2. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's going to be a fun discussion. That's, that's one we've been wanting to talk about for a while. Funny story, since we're talking about uh, working in movie theaters, when Predator 2 came out, we got the first advance movie poster. I don't know if you remember what the first movie poster was, but it's the Predator standing on, um, I don't know. Oh, on the, le- on the, on like the ledge the of a building. Or something? Oh, yeah, yeah, and he's yeah. holding a uh, skull with a spinal cord. Yeah. So about a week later, we get a uh, letter. It reminds or something. me of Mortal Kombat. <laughs> we get this letter from I think 20th Century Fox, and it was like, "You have to take that poster down. Here's the new one. We got a lot of complaints for it, and send it back." And so we're like, "Oh, okay, we'll take oh, it, it down." And, and then the uh, new one was just like a blue one with like a black almost silhouette of the Predator, which yeah. is it's ter- it's a terrible poster. Yeah, yeah. So I I took that one home. And uh, it's in the collection. It's it's Angel's favorite poster. She's a huge Predator fan. Yeah, so, uh, yeah. It's like my favorite movie trailer of all time is still the the Texas Chainsaw Massacre one with the uh, the Excalibur Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Oh, I remember oh, that. Oh, yeah. Where the saw comes out of the lake and he catches it. It makes no sense whatsoever, <laughs> but it's just the greatest trailer of all time. It has nothing to do with the movie. Nothing. Nothing. But it's just Man, that's a great trailer. <laughs> in, a, yeah. in a world where a guy... 
<laughs> Bob's a chainsaw. It's just some guy, some heavy he stick guy. With a, people. Yeah, with an apron standing by a lake yeah. and then a giant chainsaw. <laughs> <laughs> then it, it goes off. That's funny. Brilliant. Brilliant. Brad, um, oh, man, I had I had so many Boston Red Sox jokes because Matt Damon and Ben Affleck were in this movie, and I didn't say a single goddamn one of them. What's your <laughs> uh, best one? We, let's start over. Let's start over. Let's, well, do, let's do you have your best one? You can. No. You, no. Okay, fine. Right All right. The moment is ruined the moment. Yeah. Well, if if people want to be like Ben and recommend their favorite bomb, how do they get you a hold fucking, of us? You, you fucking missed it, kid. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Who's Kyle we taking? That was good. That was good. <laughs> That line in the town is the best line in any movie ever. We got to hurt some people. Who's Kyle we taking? <laughs> Who's Kyle we taking? Uh, that is not a bomb pod at gmail.com. You can also reach us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Um, you can go to the website. Ben, ben went yeah. to the website and just yeah. uh, hit submit. Hit contact us and hit submit. And it was easy peasy lemon squeezy. There you yeah. go. Well, Sammy, uh, what do you guys got coming up? It's it's always a pleasure to have you, and I'm so glad every Monday morning I get to hear you and Will. But uh, what do you, what do you guys been talking about? Uh, we got lots of stuff coming up. Um, we got the Mac coming out this week, uh, which you may or if you listen to this show and that show, you would have heard it came out yesterday because you guys released <laughs> on Tuesdays. Yeah, we kind of go ass to ass. You go by <laughs> on Monday, we come in on Tuesday. Right. Um. We're going to be talking about some other stuff soon. Moon in the gutter. Um, there's other reviews that will probably come out soon that you'll hear. A lot of good stuff. I promise you nothing but uh, fun, wacky stuff over at the GGTMC at all times. Love it. Well, thank you for jumping on. I know you've uh, spent a lot of time with us. Um, we will always, always love to have you on again. So yeah, I'll look at the updated schedule when you guys send it back my way. Perfect. <laughs> Uh, Brad, anything else? I, I have a great time doing it. Uh, my wife's always right, though. You know. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Are you yep. Are you putting that I, out there? No, she's just in general. His wife's go, always right. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. She's always like, you fucking prick. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. All right. I think. Are we good? Why don't Brad? you go get some chowder? <laughs> yeah. Okay. I'm not listening to the okay, Boston sorry. accents all night. <laughs> Listen, folks, I don't know if you're listening in the morning, the afternoon, or the evening. Thank you for downloading the show and listening, playing along. Please send us your feedback on this week's movie. Go check it out. Do not do not sleep on The Last Duel. We, we think you'll love it. And join us next week when we are doing Predator 2. So uh, we'll see you then. Don't lose your head. Peace.